Here's a few words with Adam McFadden of Firehouse Training. Hey, Adam. How's it going, Scott? Good. So I guess the biggest news this month is the reopening of your facility in Fergus for in-person training. Why don't you bring me up to speed on that? Yeah, we plan on getting back into some in-class training uh, next month. Uh, August 16th is the day we're going to be planning a course called Practical Incident Command Systems, and that takes place at our facility in Fergus. That'll be the first time that we've been back there uh, since the whole pandemic started. Some of the topics that we'll be covering that day is basically an overview of incident management systems, be involving uh, tabletop scenarios, uh, hands-on demonstrations. We'll be doing a review of uh, municipal disaster emergency plans, also looking at some emergency operations center awareness, and also some accountability systems throughout various emergencies that anyone would encounter. We'll also review some working response videos and have everybody work together in groups discussing what the different allied agencies would perform when it comes to tasks and strategies at a mass event. So looking forward to a good turnout there. We have many uh, career emergency services staff that have already registered, and we're looking forward to participate. So that takes place on Sunday, August 16th, and that's our practical incident command systems for the emergency services course. And obviously, you're facing a new normal. What kind of precautions are you going to have to take? Yeah, we definitely take uh, the precautions very seriously. Some of the things that we'll be handling include providing masks for everybody uh, that arrive on site. We'll also have hand sanitizer and thermometers to ensure that everybody is safe to participate that day. Because this course is going to be heavy when it comes to hands-on and practical evolutions and tabletops, we're definitely going to look to maintain proper social distancing uh, and only seat one or two participants at each table. And we'll also be doing some activities both inside and outside, not only for extra experience when it comes to handling different emergencies, but also to maintain that social distancing. We talked recently about you taking hazmat and CBRNE to another level. Want to talk to me about that? Absolutely. Uh, hazmat and CBRNE definitely one of my fortes when it comes to teaching and instruction. And we know that here in Ontario, but also in Canada, there is a definite lack of training opportunities for those looking for extra fire service education in areas of hazmat and weapons of mass destruction. Some of the courses that we do have coming up is chemical detections for the fire services course. This is basically a software application course that will be conducted via Zoom. We'll be discussing the effects of chemical spills in the environment, also looking at risk-based response initiatives in hazmat. But the great thing about this course is that we'll be using a downloadable application that can be used on your cell phone that turns your smartphone into a hands-on chemical detector or hazmat simulator. So we're really looking forward to those activities. Some other contents that we'll be covering in the course includes chemical detection techniques and tactics, also some scene safety and size up for hazmat and CBRNE events, and how to mitigate and control many of the hazards that we can see out there. I also recently received some news that we'll have a guest speaker from Washington joining us for our Zoom session on Wednesday, August 19th. So we have Chris Papps from Hazmat and Rescue, and he'll be conducting a one-hour free Zoom session for many of our firehouse training students in the areas of hazmat, vapor pressure, and some other spill response tactics. So we're looking forward to having him come up here to Canada via Zoom and joining us for a great training session, too. Do you have any other new courses for the end of the summer? Yeah, actually, we do, Scott. We have a uh, defensive driving operations for the emergency services course that we're running via Zoom on Wednesday, August 26th. And it's going to be a great course for aspiring firefighters, police officers, and paramedics that are looking for some extra education in and above what they learned in their post-secondary college courses. We're going to be covering different things from identifying roadside hazards, 
how to do a circle check for your emergency vehicle, defending against collisions, basic driving procedures and emergency response procedures as well, and also doing some emergency response guidelines and procedures for all three of the major emergency services. We have some guest speakers coming in to assist us with that and a great program in place, and that'll be running at the end of August. One thing I think a lot of people are probably excited about is all the departments opening up their recruitment across the province. What's your take on that? Yes, fully but surely the departments are getting back into the swing of things. We're not seeing the uptick that we quite expected, but we are seeing a few. Some of the different processes taking place include some aptitude testing as well as interview processes that are happening via Zoom and Skype as the new norm. We are planning some career coaching sessions and getting quite a few more calls when it comes to candidates looking for assistance in the areas of mock interview prep or resume and cover letter and even aptitude test tutoring. Uh, But I think as we go further into the fall, Uh, We'll see more and more fire departments looking at the different budgetary requirements and some of the changes that have taken place. And then hopefully we'll see some more recruitments happening uh, later in the year. What's the feedback been like on the mental health awareness course we ran? Yeah, we appreciate having you on for our mental health awareness course. And the feedback has been absolutely fantastic. We ran that four-hour Zoom session. We had over 23 participants and great feedback in regards to the different topics that you covered. Some of the areas that really received some great feedback was looking at personal growth opportunities and learning how to process emotions and understanding perception. Also understanding more about self-development guidelines and timelines. And it really allowed our students at Firehouse Training to take a different look and grasp a lot of things that either they've had some issues with in the past or increase that resiliency for something that they might encounter in the future. A great session and we look forward to some more mental health training in the future. Nice. So as we look forward to things opening up more and more, do you have any advice for people trying to get on or current firefighters, how they can keep their education going? You know, it's true that many fire departments, due to social distancing rules, among other things, weren't training as much as they should. And by taking that time to take an online course, or even now going into the fall with some more hands-on training, definitely take that initiative to continue to learn and then push yourself going forward so you can maintain those competencies and then continue to be a good firefighter. Awesome. I'm looking forward to chatting more. I appreciate that, Scott. All right. Take care. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 27. I'm Scott Hewlett. Persistence, tenacity, determination, resolve, endurance, patience, resolution. These synonyms are becoming a rarer characteristic in a culture of entitlement and instant gratification, where attaining things without adversity are celebrated, and the thought of striving towards goals despite adversities is rarely considered. Instead of discovering how deep they can dig, There are people that barely scratch the surface. Not only has my guest this episode overcome the challenges he has faced, he has grown from them. But more admirable still, he has gone on to contribute in his way to better the service he has worked so hard to become a part of. It's a distinct pleasure to bring you, Jay Bonifield. Hey, Jay. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Oh, pretty good, man. How are you doing? Good. How was the walk? Slow, man. I got a 10-year-old English bulldog named Phil. He doesn't move too fast, so it's a little bit of a chore taking him for a walk these days. He likes to do it, but he doesn't move very fast anywhere. 
and he doesn't listen because he can't hear. So, have you had him since a pup? Oh yeah, we got him when he was a puppy. The bulldogs, man, they're quite characters. Every stage of life. Well, why don't you start off by telling me where you grew up and what your family structure and upbringing were like? I grew up in Western Washington, where I live now, on Camano Island. We're about an hour north of Seattle. I was born in Oregon originally, and then my parents moved up here. My great-grandparents from both sides came over from Norway and ended up, they found similar areas. So Stanwood and this town next to it, Arlington. And so I had great-grandparents here. My parents decided to move up here when they found out they were uh, pregnant with me since we already had some family. I'm the oldest of five and have been here in this Stanwood Camino area ever since. When my wife and I got married, we lived about a half an hour north for a little while and then ended up getting drawn back in here and built a house here and raising our families, going through the same school system that I went through when I was a kid. So another generation of Bonfields coming up through and all the teachers are kind of the same and whatnot. So that's kind of cool. I got two brothers and two sisters. We grew up down the road around the corner from my grandparents. My Uncle Jim, that's blind and mentally handicapped, he lived with them. So we always had grandma and grandpa close, which was really cool. My grandpa's a guy I grew up looking up to a lot. And my dad worked in concrete, still does to this day. And my mom worked in the house. She's actually driving a school bus now. Pretty funny because she doesn't mess around. Like she's five foot three and she's a very small person, but she's got a huge personality. And I told her when she started driving the school bus, I was like, mom, I'm scared for those kids. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to scare some of those little guys. So she loves it. I don't know if the kids love it in return, but <laughs> I, I know she loves it. It runs a tight ship. <laughs> she does, man. She's a, the essence of a disciplinarian for sure. But after raising five kids, I suppose that's what comes out of that. You mentioned to me you grew up in a small house. Yeah. Yeah. My dad's job wasn't the most financially stable for the family growing up. You know, it was what my parents could afford. And looking back now, you know, I have three kids of my own and I'm looking at what they crammed all of us five into. I'm like, that had to have been pretty stressful for them. I didn't really notice it as a kid. You know, I just knew that sharing rooms with your brothers and stuff like that. And the tight quarters definitely made for, you got a lot of good practice with getting along with people and sharing your stuff. Everybody was deeply involved in everybody else's problems. The conflict management style essentially was you either deal with it or you go get out of the house and head out in the woods for a walk or something because staying in the phone booth that was the house there with all those people running around, deal with it or get out and take a break for a second. But kind of good for us. Fond memories of growing up in a little house. But yeah, I definitely spent a lot of time outside as a kid. And your family faced what you said was a higher than average amount of adversity. Tell me about that. I'm not going to like call it an extraordinary anything. I mean, there's definitely a lot of folks who have gone through way worse. I would call it the right amount of adversity because the stuff that we went through was so beneficial to me going forward in life. And a lot of it just seemed at the time unnecessary. Looking back now, I'm very thankful for a lot of the lessons that we learned. You know, right out of the gate when I came into the world, my parents were young and weren't super stable. So that kind of adds its own challenges a little bit. And, you know, here's a baby coming in hot and you got to figure out how to feed him. My dad's always had a really high level work ethic. And so he just took these very hard physical jobs just to provide for the family. And my mom was working as well, you know, kind of get a little bit of help from the grandparents. 
But my grandfather, my dad's dad, who I'm really close with, he was in and out of prison for quite some time before I kind of arrived on scene there. And he was a alcoholic and drug addict, and he grew up pretty hard and then maintained that through my dad's childhood and then through some of mine and actually my earliest memories of my grandpa. My grandma, she would take us to go talk to him at the prison through the phone and the glass. She'd say, oh, we're going to see Papa at Sinners College. I didn't really understand what prison was. My uncle that lived with them, and he actually went blind in high school. And so they kind of had a lot of stuff with my grandpa's addiction problems and my uncle going blind, my dad trying to make ends meet. So that was all prior to me getting there. Well, then you just drop a baby and that doesn't make things a whole lot easier. So a lot of my early years, my mom would call them, these are lessons on how not to be, you know, whether it was from my grandpa or my dad as a young man. My dad and I have a great relationship now, but early on, I mean, I think he would definitely say that, you know, he had no clue what he was doing and as I wouldn't either. And so it was kind of a a rocky start for him and I a lot growing up. And about the time my dad and I started really having problems, my grandpa He'd been out of prison. He really turned his life around. And him and I started getting really close, which was really good for me. I think as a little boy, it was definitely feeling a little bit lonely there with my relationship with my dad. So to be able to have my grandpa close and especially somebody that I respected so much, because uh, even being little, I could see a lot of the stuff that he overcame to get to where he's at. Some of the big lessons that he instilled on me when I was little. He would see me going down a lot of the similar path that he started down as a young man. He just called me on the carpet. He was very blunt, didn't mess around with saying, you know, hey, this is how I started out. And he was always big on it's the little thing. I never set out to go to prison. I never set out to do X, Y, and Z. It started out with little lapses and allowing this lack of discipline and all these other bad habits to have a foothold in my life. And it started out very small and then you let it happen more and you let it happen more, you let it happen more. And then before you know it, if you have a mindset of it won't happen to me, then it will likely happen to you. So he started fostering that mindset with me early on. My family, there was the lingering after effects of alcoholism and addiction that have impacted my family over the long haul. There's a lot of different adverse conditions with a lot of this stuff that comes from that abuse. And it was a grow up quick kind of environment, especially having the brothers and sisters that I had behind me coming up. I felt like as the older brother, it was kind of my job to try to take care of them the best I could. And it kind of forced me to grow up pretty quick, which there's pros and cons about that. A lot of fantastic lessons that I learned and a lot of discipline that came out of it. A lot of it was stuff that I got to watch my dad. I got to watch my grandpa. I got to watch these guys make mistakes as these events would happen. And I'd be sitting in my room trying to make sense of what's happening. My mom would come in and she'd sit down. She'd highlight the instances and she'd say, okay, you know, this is a lesson in how not to be. She was very intentional. And so was my grandpa. They were very intentional about identifying the issues as they came forward and making sure to point out what got the person or myself or whoever was going through the incident, what got us there. And then, okay, how can we avoid this next time? So how does that frame for you, how you manage your family and your kids now? I have to be really careful 
because the experience is good from a self-discipline perspective, but it can also lead to a little bit of hypervigilance. My kids are young, so I'm just kind of starting to figure this out with my oldest. You know, he's in kindergarten and we're not into like the super heavy stuff, but (laughs) I do have like a little bit of a hypervigilance about me where I tend to forecast problems that may not even be problems. My wife loves this. My brain is just moving quickly through the mental Rolodex of identifying and triaging these problems and addressing them. And so what it can come out to with my family is a little bit of a hypercritical attitude. So I got to be really careful that I'm not making stuff out to be more than it is. I want to make sure that the kids have room to make mistakes because they're going to, and I want them to make not big ones, but (laughs) I want them to make mistakes and learn from them, you know, and not have this parent that's like, I know where you're going with that. I know what's going to happen. So I got to be careful in that aspect. But some of the core principles that my grandpa's taught me and that my mom's taught me about how I don't want my kids to ever have a mindset really with anything. You know, it can come to alcohol and drug addiction, but you can expand that to all sorts of areas of your life where if you have a mindset of, oh, it won't happen to me, oh, it won't happen to me, you're just creating a blind spot for yourself there, like a willful blind spot. And there's a level of humility that comes with being able to just say, yeah, it could happen to me in whatever situation you're going into. So have kind of a reverence and a respect for the ability that we have to make mistakes and uh, how far we can fall. Another thing that I would like my kids to take and run with is our family's fresh out of a lot of this dysfunction. And I think that there's a lot to look in the rearview mirror at and say, yeah, let's not go back to that. And I take the responsibility personally of being the generation that moves our family away from that. My brothers and my sisters do as well. They're of the same mindset. And I don't want that to get lost on our kids. Like that's part of our history and caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. And lack of discipline is what got us there. And lack of discipline will let us return there if we let it. So it'll be the generation that does that. Yeah, it's sort of double-edged to having a family of your own because it can bring up all these triggers like you're mentioning. But without having a family of your own, you don't get this opportunity to even transform yourself and move yourself beyond it. It puts a lot into perspective. My dad and I have a great relationship now, but a lot of the stuff as a kid, you know, me and my dad would just go at each other, especially when I was a teenager. And I couldn't figure out why. Why is he like this? Not to make excuses. I know that he wouldn't make excuses, but the pressure of providing for a family when you have a job, especially like my dad's, where it's super long hours, it's very physically demanding, and the building industry as a whole, it ebbs and it flows. I mean, when the economy's bad, they're not pouring concrete. My dad's not working a whole lot, and so he's got to go find odd jobs. And, you know, I remember as a kid, him dragging me around, like, he'd pressure wash roofs on the side just to make up for lack of work. And so he'd like plop me in his truck when I was little and we'd go and I'd sit there and eat Fritos and watch him pressure wash roofs when I was a kid. And then when I got old enough, I started helping him out with that stuff. And he was the sole income for the family. Just seemed like we could never get ahead. And that's a lot of just heavy, heavy pressure on somebody, you know, male or female, if you're the sole provider of your family. And especially when the ends aren't meeting and wintertime comes around, his job slows down a lot during the winter. You know, he wasn't the senior guy. And so he wasn't getting the hours. And as a kid, 
I knew all that, but there was no way for me to really know the true magnitude of it because to me, we ended up making it. I didn't mind that I didn't have super cool toys or new clothes. It didn't register to me when people from our local church would drop off food from the grocery store for us. When it was real tough, I was like, oh, cool, food. But for my dad my mom, as a parent now, looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is stressful, man. And you can kind of see why there was this harshness looking back now. And ever since I left the house, I have a lot more respect for my dad because as a kid, I was like, oh man, he's harsh. So I hope my kids give me some grace, man, because <laughs> being a parent's hard. Well, yeah, it's got to be such a tough thing. Maybe it's impossible to be as harsh as you need to be to survive that work life and the stress and then be as soft yeah. as your family may need you to be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. To be able to get home from a 10-hour day or whatever he's doing and then flip the switch instantly and become soft dad who wrestle around on the floor and read your books and whatnot, that switch is hard to flip. I mean, shoot, man, my switch is hard enough to flip when I get off shift after a rough night and I come home and I got to really watch when I walk through the door. You know, sometimes I'll walk through the door and I'll be a little bit grumpy and snappy and my wife will (laughs) tell me to take a walk to the end of the driveway, think about how I'm acting, turn around and come back in the house when I'm ready to treat people nice. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) You're saying, and you're right up to me, that you don't really have a desire to be rich, but to be stable. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, that played a lot into my choice and career path. Like I didn't grow up necessarily wanting to be a firefighter, But what I wanted was I wanted stability because of the instability we had financially growing up. Again, it wasn't like we were the poorest people out there or anything like that. I mean, it was just what I knew growing up. It was stressful. Like I could feel the financial stress as a kid. And I always just kind of knew whatever I do, I just want it to be stable. I want it to be something that doesn't ebb and flow so aggressively. I, I want it to be something that you know, nothing in this world is guaranteed, but my next paycheck's basically guaranteed. You know, it's going to be the same amount. I don't care how much it is. I just want it to be enough to live off of. And I want it to be consistent was kind of my thing. And when I started working, I started working in trades because that's kind of what my family has done. My brother's in the trades in this area that I grew up in. It's kind of what everybody gravitates towards. There's a lot of different trade jobs around here. And so... I was looking at jobs and the fire service didn't pop up. I was doing carpentry. I did dirt work. I worked in a machine shop and then I was taking a shop class at school and I was like, oh, cool. I, you know, maybe go be a mechanic. And so I started working for an auto shop and having to buy my own tools and got my own stall there and kind of started working my way up through that industry a little bit. I didn't do it that long before I jumped into firefighting, but I remember having this discussion with my boss one day and I just paid off a bunch of my tools and I needed this specialty knickknack tool for this project that was a 200 and something dollar tool that I'm going to use once on this one project. And I'm like, geez, man, I spent a lot of money on tools, young single guy with no family or anything. And a good portion of my not very big paycheck already is going towards tools. And I asked my boss about what does this long-term look like financially? And some of the numbers that he was coming back with me on and just the instability guy to stall next to me were 
there was probably three different guys that worked there during my time. And if these guys were long time mechanics and they would come in there and they'd work for a little bit and, you know, something wouldn't work out and they'd go down the road to the next shop. And, and I'm like, man, I don't want that. That's not stable. I got to figure something else out. Yeah. Stability is huge for me. I've never in my life had a desire for large amounts of money at all. Money has never been a driving factor to me. In fact, I took a pretty significant pay cut to come from another department to work for the place I work for now. So as long as I have enough to get the family by, I'm good with that. I always think it's important to talk about mentors and idols, and I'm sure we're going to mention a few, but you mentioned John Wayne as one of yours. Yeah. What did he epitomize for you? What gaps did he fill? What inspiration did you get from him? John Wayne, he was one of the biggest parts of my childhood, man. (laughs) I don't know. I was fascinated with cowboys as a little guy. It's hard for me to put a finger on exactly what, and specifically John Wayne, And then when I started getting a little bit older, like my first swear word I learned from John Wayne and, uh, my, my, uh, mom had me, I was, I don't know how old I was. I was old enough. I was little, I was really little. I was little enough to ride in the grocery cart. My mom took me to the grocery store and saw somebody that we knew there. And I dropped this newfound swear word that I had just learned from a John Wayne movie on him. And my mom was horrified, you know. (laughs) So I kind of had a little bit of a gap there where I think they toned the John Wayne movies back for a little while. But then I I got back into them. But I love the John Wayne Cowboy movies and Hopalong Cassidy and Lone Ranger and all those. And then I also really love like John Wayne's war movies when I was a little bit older. And I always gravitated towards pretty stoic characters for whatever reason. And there was nothing like conscious about it that made me gravitate towards them. But, you know, John Wayne was kind of always like the big guy who didn't talk a lot, but he was tough as nails. He'd persevere and the problem would get a little bit out of hand. And finally, John Wayne would take a big sigh and he'd go and deal with the problem, but he wouldn't showboat about it. He wouldn't big deal it. He would just go in there and handle business and then ride off into the sunset. And there was something about that that just resonated with me as a kid. You mentioned because of your tight quarters, you'd sometimes just get up and be able to go off and take a walk in the woods. So you mentioned you grew up rural. Yeah. And you kind of had free reign to do that all day. So tell me about that and what it meant to you as a kid and sort of tie in your circle of friends. Man, I had such a cool area that I grew up in. Just the way the neighborhood, quote unquote, kind of came together. I mean, most people drive through and I say neighborhood, but the houses are they can't see each other. There's a lot of trees between them, but there was five kids in my family. There was a house through the woods. I think they had seven kids. And then the house next door to them was their cousins with seven or eight kids. And then we had another house down the road, but still within walking distance that had five or six boys. And so there was like within our little area there, from the time I went to kindergarten, there was all of us boys that were all within four-ish years of each other. There was a ton of us, and we were, my childhood probably looked a lot more like the kids in Peter Pan that hang out in the woods unsupervised all day. My mom had a big dinner bell, like a big cowbell. We'd just be out in the woods playing all day, and then when it was dinner time, she'd go out on the deck and just smack the cowbell as hard as she could for us to hear it down in the woods. And we'd come bombing up covered in mud and scarf down some food and then run back in the woods and play till dark. One of the kids' families, they 
owned a lumber yard. And so we had crazy access to as many nails. It was actually a little bit of a way for us to make money was taking big boxes of nails and we'd sit there and we'd get paid. I forget how much, like a buck a box or something like that. We'd divide nails into smaller boxes for the lumberyard. But we had all the nails that you can imagine. And then his dad would bring home tons and tons and tons of scrap wood, tons of eye joists and plywood and OSB and all sorts of different scrap materials. And we just had this like in my eyes as a kid, infinite amount of woods to go play in. And we would take all this wood and we'd go down and we had the most glorious tree forts you could ever imagine for a kid. And they were horribly unsafe. (laughs) Nails sticking out everywhere as these 12, 13-year-olds just try to figure out how to build this monstrosity and suspend it from a tree. And then everybody goes up and loads in the thing. You can feel it swaying around and then enjoy it for a little bit and then go find another spot for another one. And it's funny because my littlest sibling at the tail end of us five, his buddies in the neighborhood now, they have gone down in the woods and they said that they've seen some of our tree forts and they're still standing Wow, all overgrown, but they're still down there. And we had this one day one that we called the Alamo. It had like these massive walls, with, you know, walks that we could patrol and keep out invaders and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> It's got a label now. It's free-range parenting. And I was like, oh, that was just us getting out of the house and out of the hair of the parents. But Camino is an island, technically. It's got a bridge on it, so you don't have to take a boat out here. But at low tide, it's more of a peninsula than it is an island. But we go down to the beach. We could walk down through the woods, probably a half-mile walk down the beach. And we go fish down there, and there's sturgeon. We end up hooking into some of those sometimes. They're pretty fun fish to fish for. Man, we just lived outside pretty much the whole time and a lot with way too much access to like tools and power tools for (laughs) what age we were. (laughs) It's crazy to think you would give your kids the same access and just let them go for the day and not know where they are. You know, that thought crosses my mind very regularly with my kids because we live in the middle of the woods and my oldest is five. And right now we got my brother and his wife and their three kids. They're the exact same ages as our three kids. They're living with us while they're building their house. And so we've got six kids under six years old running around here. They spend the majority of every day outside, but I've always got my mind like, okay, how far out in the woods are they? Oh, you know, I want to make sure I can hear them and stuff. And I'm like, geez, I don't know how my mom did this. Like, (laughs) she just let us go. (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah, I had a similar free reign too. And to think about letting my girls just be gone for the day and me not know, I don't know if I can handle it. And it's just weird how that is different for them than it was for me. Yeah, it is. And like, we didn't have cell phones or anything. Somebody gets hurt and somebody's got to make the run back to the closest house to yeah. let the parents know, hey, he's, he's actually hurt. Like he's down, <laughs> you know. <Right. laughs> Hold on, buddy. We'll be back. So your friends had similar backgrounds? You guys kind of figured out life together? Yeah. Yeah, it was just a weird coincidence I'm really thankful for. And there was me and three of the other guys. We went through kindergarten all the way through high school together. And, you know, they were my best buddies. And to this day, they're all in the same area. I see them all the time. They got kids and lives, but they kind of became my family. I always had my brother. We've always been really close. But those three guys from kindergarten on up, I mean, we were inseparable. And I think because everybody went through similar levels of dysfunction in their house, but it just looked a little bit different in every family. 
because of that, I mean, we just spend all this time out in the woods and we just talk as we're pounding nails and building tree forts. My grandparents had a pool table. And so when we were teenagers, we'd literally put in eight hour days, shoot pool and talking. And the day would fly by as we're just like solving life's problems together. My brother and I saved up our money from pressure washing and uh, mowing lawns. And we were able to buy a bunch of weights and gym equipment. Parents had a garage. And so we were able to carve out space. This kid, my buddy Vinny, his dad played college football. And so when we told him, yeah, we wanted to really get into lifting, he was all about it. And he's all, yeah, I'll you know, make room for you guys. You guys can do your thing there. And so we had all this weight equipment and then it became like an addiction. You know, we're surfing newspaper ads and whatever else we could to try to find used gym equipment and add it to the collection there. And we kind of had this common theme or whatever we were into at the time, we were all into the same thing and we would just use it kind of as this like mechanism to just figure out life together. We'd just be talking the whole time and we kind of viewed ourselves as this little family. All of us were going through stuff in our own right with our own families, but us all together were a very functional little family. That really helped out a lot to have that. And that like stability, I mean, especially my teenage years, that was the most stable thing. And you just always knew day or night, you always had a couch to crash on or whatever you needed when stuff got hard. Or if you just needed to talk about something, those were the dudes you talked to. And we had this, you know, circle the wagons mentality with the four of us and, you know, my brother and one of the other kids. There's probably about six of us that were really the tight circle there. You guys played sports together too? Yeah, we played just about everything. Sports were a huge part of my life growing up. When I get into something and I'm into it, I get borderline obsessive about it. I wouldn't say borderline. I get obsessive about it. (laughs) Some of my hobbies and stuff like that, I'll get into something and and I just go on a tear and I'm consumed by that thing. So I got to be careful in that aspect, knowing what I know now, but sports that was my thing. And I was just obsessed with soccer and football. And then later on, it became wrestling. And I do jujitsu to this day. And that's a big hobby of mine. I've always loved competition. And I was able to compete at a pretty high level in a couple of sports growing up. I played for some cut teams where, you know, you'd have to go and try out and you'd wait. They didn't notify you via email. You know, they'd type it out and send it in the mail. You go and you try out, do your best, and hope you made the team. And then you have to wait for a couple of weeks for the letter to come in the mail to let you know whether or not you made it. And man, that was foreshadowing of things to come because <laughs> trying to get hired in the fire service, was, uh, I was like, oh, shoot, this is just like trying out for those cut teams growing up. Like, this is the exact same process. But I was really lucky to get exposed to some really high levels of coaching with some of the higher end cut teams that I was able to be a part of. And I spent, you know, my whole life getting coached and I had some bad coaches and I had some coaches that were guys that played professional level and then came back and were coaching us. And, you know, we go to college campuses to go to camps and get exposed to really good coaching there. And so I had this upbringing of having very good coaching in those sports. And that definitely played a lot into aiding me in the fire service going forward, knowing what good coaching is. So that definitely played a lot in in who I am today. But yeah, it was an outlet, the sports, the competitive side. And man, I was obsessive about film study. 
I looked up to all these athletes growing up and all of them would say the same thing. I was a gym rat and I was really into film study. And I was like, okay, boom, got it. Gym rat, film study. We built a garage gym and me and my buddies and my brother just started working out like madmen. And I signed up for zero period weight training before school starts. And then we'd have some sort of a weight training class midday. And then we'd have practice after school. And there was seasons where I was playing like two sports in the same season. So I'd go from one practice immediately after school to right back into another practice for another sport right after that one. And I just, I loved it. I love to go back and watch myself play and pick myself apart and, you know, see where the holes in my game were and then just drill those over and over and over and over again. Like I said, I had some great coaching, which definitely helped me just kind of learn how to like analyze movement, look for faults in technique. I just love the process of finding the weak spots in my game and trying to work them out in the practice environment. I can go out and play and get smoked completely and lose the game horribly. But if the little tiny detail that I was seeking to improve on improved, then like I walk away just beaming. Oh, I fixed it, right? I just love the, the process and I loved the preparation side of sports. I loved the whole week long grind of working out and preparing, getting mentally ready before the game. And like, I love the games too, but I don't know. I just fell in love with the preparation side of things a lot. Like I said, obsessive, but it definitely played a lot into who I am now. That's for sure. Foreshadowing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it couldn't have turned out better. Looking back, it's like, oh, no, that makes complete sense. Tell me about your school experience. Yeah, so I was a terrible student. I don't know. Some switch just kind of flipped, I think, when I figured out that I could disrupt class and make people laugh. Second grade or something like that, I started like, oh, man, I can derail the teacher by making people laugh. As soon as that kind of caught on with me, I was like, okay, boom, got it. It's time for me to start honing my craft here. And what started out as like good natured, I think just the saltiness and the I know better of the teenage years comes around, especially like it wasn't as good natured. It was more like just downright being mischievous. But I got terrible grades. My teachers would always have counseling sessions with my mom and my mom would come in and, okay, we got to talk to you about Jay's progress, you know, and we had to kick Jay out of class here. We had to kick Jay out of class there. And, you know, he's falling behind here. He's falling behind there. And like my mom, you know, she's just trying to keep five kids fed and clothed and alive. And so she doesn't have the time to like school me up and counsel me or anything. And we didn't have any money to like take me to tutoring. I remember my mom having this talk with me over and over again. She go, you probably don't realize it now because you're young and you think it's funny, but someday you're really going to regret this. And I don't know how else to tell you, but grades are important. Schoolwork's important. You need to take it seriously. And if you don't, I can't help you. You know, she doesn't have enough time to sit there and baby me. So, you know, you make your bed, you're going to lie in it. And, you know, hopefully you make the right choice. And I said, okay. And I didn't, especially when I was able to drive. I loved hunting. I loved duck hunting, especially. I mean, I would basically show up for zero period weight training and then the sun would kind of start to come up a little bit as class was ending. So I get my workout in and then, you know, I go run out to my truck. I had all my hunting stuff in it and I'd go and bomb down to one of the fields that I would hunt all the time and go and hunt until after lunch, show up for one class after missing a bunch of the core, you know, math, English, all that kind of stuff. 
the classes that I showed up for regularly was I had this one teacher, Mr. Short, and for whatever reason, him and I just clicked and he kind of mentored me without being like an official mentor. And he ran doing AutoCAD and shop stuff and architecture. He did a bunch of different classes, but that was kind of his realm. And he worked real close with the shop teachers and I got along great with the shop teachers, but there was just something about Mr. Short. You had to pass the quarter before your sport that you wanted to play. If You had to have a C minus average. During the season, your grades didn't matter, so I would just slack off and fall behind. And the quarter before whatever sport I wanted to play, I up my game to a C minus level and pass my classes so I could keep playing sports. And, you know, Mr. Short, just for whatever reason, like I said, him and I kind of clicked. And, you know, he didn't like sit me down and give me any big lectures about how I need to take grades seriously. Like he more just kind of would laugh. He'd hear the other teachers complaining about me and he'd just laugh and he'd just kind of sit there and be like, dude, what are you doing? And I don't know what it was about him, but there was something about him that was like, I want to do well in this guy's class. And I ended up taking a lot of classes from him. He ran this thing called Technology Students Association, I think, TSA. It's like FFA or these national student organizations. And he was like the Washington lead. And so they had a building construction track. They covered all sorts of different subjects where you had to frame walls and do these kind of things for competition, hang drywall and all this kind of stuff. And it was a really cool thing because I had a background doing that. And I was like, this is a pretty easy way for me to compete and win and end up taking that pretty seriously. I mean, as seriously as I could at the time, I guess, and made it to the national competition, ended up taking first in that. And that was like the only thing in high school that I actually education-wise took seriously and like saw all the way through and took first on a national level. And, you know, they handed me the plaque. I was like, okay, cool. And I checked up my truck and, and that was that. It was like my one and done. I'm out. And my poor mom, like she's getting bombarded with, you know, letters from the state about how I've missed so much school that they were going to file this truancy on me and I was going to get in a bunch of trouble and stuff. And then I go to the alternative high school and the online stuff was just starting to kind of come around. And I figured out that I could miss all this school. I could push everything all the way to the limit where I'm getting letters from the officials on high, so to speak, outside of the high school. And then I could just real quick sign up, enroll in the alternative high school and pump out a quarter's worth of makeup work in my core classes that I needed in like two weeks online. And so that kind of became my little dance that I would do and wait for things to get really bad and then boom, run over to the alternative high school and bang it out in two weeks and, you know, go back to the regular high school and slack off. And so when I graduated high school, I had a 1.6 cumulative GPA for my four years in high school. It was like a few days before graduation, if they were going to let me graduate or not. I kind of had this time where I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. And then I remember going into the counselor's office, the career counselor lady that was kind of in charge of a certain clump of students and I was in her clump and obviously took the most of her time. And she comes in, Jay, I got good news for you. They're going to let you graduate. So that was the end of school there for me. Mr. Short had encouraged you to compete in building comps? Yeah. And actually it was very odd. Like there was nothing about that school club that drew me to it at all because a lot of it was, like I said, AutoCAD and kind of architecture and stuff. And I didn't want to do any of that stuff. I've never had a knack for technology and I've never had an interest in sitting behind a computer. And so, you know, a lot of the guys 
that I was in those classes with, they loved the architecture stuff and they were really good at it. And a lot of them went on to be architects afterwards, which is cool, but they covered like video production and all these like different technological fields. And I don't know exactly why the hands-on, it might've been to kick kids into like a construction management career path, but the competitions, you got issued a set of plans, you had to read the set of plans, and then you had to go and build based off those plans. They buy us a lumber package and just build a little house out of it, put a roof on it and make sure you got vents in the roof and all that kind of stuff. And the competitions took a couple of days, but it was a two-person competition. My partner was one of the four guys that I grew up with, one of my best buddies, Dan. So the two of us were just kind of in sync on another level that probably the other kids weren't. We just spent so much time in the woods pounding nails and messing with stuff. And once we learned how to replan for Mr. Short, it was just very intuitive to us. And yeah, we ended up taking first there. And it was kind of, you know, fun watching Mr. Short get all excited about it because I don't think we'd had anybody from our school do super well in any of the competitions yet. So that was kind of fun for him to be able to see the fruit of his labor of bearing with these kids who are incredibly disruptive in his class. He put up with us. He was really good natured and he announced our football games over the PA. And so he was kind of always really plugged in with our football team and he was just kind of plugged in a lot of different areas of our life. And he was one of those teachers where he couldn't do this for everybody, but for me and for Dan and for a couple of the other guys, he didn't ask to talk to us about stuff. He didn't ask for any of that, but he was just that personality where he could kind of tell something was bugging you that day. And you know, Hey man, what's going on? And he talked to you more like a buddy. There was no like agenda or anything like that. He was just very easy to talk to. So he kind of became almost a parent at school for So that whole environment also led to you gaining something unexpected in meeting your wife. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So how'd that come to be? Yeah, that was funny. So she went to a different school about an hour away up in Blaine, Washington, which is the border town before you pass through into Canada. And their school mascot was the border rights, which it's just like the giant peace arch. Everybody's like, well, what the heck's a border right? <laughs> Nobody can tell you quite what a border right is, but she was in that TSA program. And, you know, we go there and me and my buddies are running around doing what stupid young teenage boys do. And we're looking for cute girls and there weren't a whole lot there. <laughs> and so we're just, <laughs> what the heck? This big conference full of people. I'm like, there's no cute girls here. And then I see this girl. I'm like, oh, okay, shoot. There's one right there. I'm going to go in and lay my best lines on her. And, Prior to this competition, there was a dress code for the whole conference, and I'd never worn dress-up clothes in my life. And I went to Walmart and bought this super cheap pair of stain-resistant slacks. And I went into the bathroom there, and I was using the restroom. One of my buddies thought it would be funny to like test the stain resistance of the pants and push me. And I ended up getting a mess on my doctor's stain-resistant pants. And all the urine like beat it up and fell off the pants. And we were like, whoa, you know, that's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went out and saw her and was like, oh, I'm going to go try my best line on her there. And I went up and told her, you know, hey, I got these new pants. How do you think I look in them? And... (laughs) You know, by the way, they're stain resistant. I just tested them out in the bathroom and she's just (laughs) sitting there with her friend like, what? (laughs) So I tried to get her phone number and she was like, no. I was like, oh man. All right, well, see you later. And I kept bumping into her over the conference. And so the track she was in was like this video editing, video production thing. And they were taking for their competition, like they were supposed to take 
pictures and videos of the whole conference and then put them together and they would like judge their videos. And she was taking pictures of our building construction. And of course I was goofing off and me and my buddies are taking our shirts off and trying to just be goofballs and stuff for the camera. And she's just rolling her eyes. And I went up to her afterwards and was like, Hey, can you, you know, send me some of those pictures? So I gave her my email and she's like, yeah, sure. And so a week after she emails me the stuff and now I've got her email and I start harassing her through the email. There's a chat thing that I was able to like chat with her back and forth on because neither one of us were able to text or we have 20 texts a month. You could send like to mom, you know, help out. <laughs> I'm hurt or something. And so we were chatting and finally I was like, Hey, do you want to meet up? And she said, yeah. So we picked like a halfway point in between and we met at an Applebee's and decided to take her out to a real classy place. (laughs) And the first thing she said when I stepped out of my little truck was, oh, you're shorter than I remembered you being. And I was just like, oh my, hi, (laughs) like nice to meet you again. (laughs) (laughs) So we started hanging out and I was going to go meet her family she was a year ahead of me in high school and she was kind of getting ready to graduate and I still had another year to go and she got really good grades and she's going to go off to college and her parents, I love them. They were very concerned with her seeing me just because like the distance and we just kept meeting in the middle. Well, then it was time to go and meet her family. It was about her graduation and I was going to go to her graduation party and she's got huge family and they're all really close. I think she's got 60 something relatives in the town of Blaine. I mean, they are like rabbits up there. Everybody is related to her in that town. And so I drive my little beat up pickup truck all the way up there. The night before, me and my buddies were out and we had a bonfire and I had like this really sweet looking mullet. And that was another reason why her parents were really concerned. And I decided, okay, I'm going to go meet her family. And like, I need to shave this thing off, look presentable. And we ended up taking razors and picking our heads. You know, we're completely just skin bald. And we had this bonfire and we built this thing up really big and I laid a sheet of OSB across it and I was going to like use the OSB as a ramp and jump through it. And as soon as I hit the OSB, the fire kind of fanned up and it burned off my eyebrows and my eyelashes. And so now I've got no hair at all on my head anywhere. (laughs) And go up in my, my little beat up pickup truck all the way up to Blaine. And I step out of my pickup truck and I had like my one nice button up shirt, my little pair of slack and uh, go walking in there. And I've got this permanently surprised look on my face with no hair (laughs) on my head. And she kind of comes over to me and is like, what did you do? Where did all your hair go? (laughs) Her family's just looking at me out of the corner like, this is your boyfriend. So that was how we got started there. And the rest is history. (laughs) The rest is history. Yeah. So what was your first exposure to the fire service? I was a mechanic. Like I said, I was in the shop there and I had these visions that when I became a mechanic, I'd be working on high-end cars and super clean, super cool shop. And really what it turned into was I was working in the same stall every single day and more than cool cars. It's like somebody goes, tries to fix something on their own in their driveway and breaks a bunch of bolts off and then gets fed up with it. And flatbeds it into the shop and says, here, you deal with it. And it's like, you're just dealing with people's hunks of junk all the time. And I was like, okay, this sucks. One of my buddies, his dad was the battalion chief for a fire department down by Seattle. And he was like, hey man, 
want to come do a ride along and just try it out? And I was like, oh, yeah, that might be kind of cool. I've never thought about being a firefighter before. So I decided to go and give that a shot. And I went down there. And the first thing I noticed was as soon as I walked in the door, the guys were just giving each other all sorts of hell. Somebody had done something. They were all laughing at one guy. And he's kind of sitting there and got that smile on his face like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Keep laughing. You know, and they were just like going after him and they were having a good time. I was like, man, this is just like playing sports. Like this is same kind of thing that we always do growing up. Whatever team you're on, you're always joking with each other like that and giving each other hell about something. And like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I think we only went on like one or two calls. Neither one of them were anything to write home about. They were both medical calls, like pretty low-end medical calls. But we did some training stuff. They were doing a confined space rescue drill. And so I was able to just hang out and help them out with some of that stuff. And they were super cool about teaching me about some of the ropes and knots. And all the guys just seemed like they worked out all the time. They gave each other all sorts of crap all the time. They were cool and they were fun to be around. And it was like, okay, I could work in an environment like this. And I don't know anything about fine fires, but the environment's cool. And kind of started doing some research about it and found out like it's got that steady paycheck. And I was like, oh, that's what I want financially. And there was another thing that kind of pinged with me, which was growing up as the oldest of five, I just viewed myself as the protector of my brothers and sisters. And the fire service, I started to realize how yeah, you're taking care of people, protecting people. And that started really becoming very appealing. I identify with that. I've been in that mindset for a while and I want to do something that has some value to it. Knowing what I know now, but at that point, I didn't really realize it, but I think subconsciously I knew that the fire service was something that is going to sound out of balance, but it was a job that you can go all in on. And with my obsessive personality, the fire service was that. It's not just some trivial thing. You tear into it and you obsess about these fine details and honing your craft and the value downstream. You're literally affecting human life and property. I mean, there's hardly a higher calling out there. And working in an auto shop where I'm just making a paycheck and then clocking out and going home, it instantly became apparent that's not that job. This is a job where I'm going to get personal value out of it. So that sent me down that career trajectory. Have you ever thought of it as socially the great equalizer? No matter rich or poor, where you're from, everybody, trauma affects everybody in the moment the same way. The fire in a home affects people in that moment in the same way. Yeah, it's a great equalizer on a lot of different levels. And that's definitely one of them. That's something I think about a lot. One of the guys on my crew, we give each other crap back and forth. When we get going, we'll just get going. But one of the things, like one of the equalizing components of the fire service, we always laugh about this. He went to college and he's got a master's degree in finance and I barely graduated high school by the skin of my teeth. I just augured in and somehow fell across the finish line and here we are on the same crew. And we always laugh about that. Well, when somebody's house catches on fire, none of that stuff matters. Like you show up and all that matters is that the job gets done. It's very raw and I really appreciate that about the fire service. Base level humanity. Yeah, it's effort. Effort is the currency. I can do that playing field level. I've got this. I can go all out on something that I know nothing else matters at that point. With the most important outcome on the line. Yeah, for sure. And the most important outcome and whatever you're able to do, the fire service kind of has this benefit of the doubt. Whatever we're able to do, however much good we're able to do, that's enough. 
for most of the people that we show up to. And yeah, we can pick apart and say, we could have done better here. We should have done better there. But like for a lot of these people that we're showing up to, it's like, dude, just start making things better and make as much better as you're humanly able to make better right now. The more you're able to make better, the better for them. And they don't really know the depth and breadth of what we're capable of. I always joke about if something's on fire, as long as we're just squirting water in the general direction of the thing that's on fire, they're like, yeah, good job. You guys are doing it, right? It's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing and a curse, man. It 100% is. So yeah, I mean, you show up to a fire and you just start making as much as you can better as fast as you can. And the more you're able to do that, the more value I take away from that. Like, okay, cool. We did a good job there. Stepping back, you said you had a difficult time getting on. So what was the process like for you? Yeah. For us here on Washington, a very common route is you get on what we call part-time where you're paid hourly. You're not a full-time employee. You don't have benefits, all that kind of stuff. Well, a lot of times you have to get on part-time with like multiple fire departments in order to kind of make ends meet and scrape by a little bit of a living. So you're working a lot of hours. You're working 24-hour shifts. It doesn't really match up well with like a job outside of the fire service. You kind of got to go get another job at a different fire department so that you can kind of sync the schedules up and work around each other. But when I first went to get on, I tested for the agency that that gave me my start. And I thought it was for a volunteer position, but it was for part-time. I had my first initial interview and then they had like a physical test the next day. And I had actually torn my meniscus right before that. And so I was going to go to this physical test and get through it and then have my knee operated on after. And I ran out of gas on the way to the physical and I ended up having to run. I forget how far away from the fire station I was, but I just sprinted pretty good distance to the station, show up and I'm, you know, gassed. And (laughs) they're like... Were you out there like working out or something? Like, good on you. Right on, man. I'm like, yeah, not wasn't my choice. And so they had me do this physical. Well, part of the physical was there was 100 feet of charged LDH on the ground. And it was off the hydrant and it had a hose strap on the end. And you had to basically drag the 100 feet of charged LDH like 90 degrees. So it was a lot of leg drive and it was on slick pavement and I didn't have good shoes. So it was like a lot of pressure on my meniscus and I was in a lot of pain, like the run to the station that hurt. And then everything else, like the Stairmaster and like they had a tire drag and they had a bunch of other stuff that all went fine. But that LDH just remember like, oh my gosh, I'm going to throw up. This hurts so bad. So I got the LDH thing done and then right after the LDH, there was uh, what was it? Oh, there was a dummy drag. So your legs are smoked. And then you go and you do this dummy drag. And I do the dummy drag and I kind of fall across the line. And I was a curtain unit. And I went out back and I like loaded up beforehand. I don't know what I was thinking, but I had loaded up on power bars and the power bars and the pain in my knee and just the physical exertion, like everything was adding up. And I just blew chunks all over the back of the fire station. The guy's like, oh, you passed the test, but look at Pukey back here. But when I showed up for my chief's interview, I showed up with this guy named Blair and Blair and I ended up getting hired together and became really good friends. They're still good friends this day, but he's pretty funny when you talk to him about that first interview, because I walked in there and I had my still one pair of slacks that I own, which were those Docker stain resistant pants. And I had this couple button polo that I bought from Walmart and Blair, he was working as a dealer at a casino 
And so he had like this beautiful suit and everything. (laughs) (laughs) We sit down next to each other in the room waiting to get called in for our chief's interview there. And he's looking at me and I love it when he tells a story because he's like, oh yeah, I'm looking at you going, I got this. This is nothing. (laughs) And I'm looking at him going, oh man, I need a new suit. You know. And we ended up both getting the job and going through the academy together. And I loved that first academy. I mean, it was so much fun. It was all militaristic and regimented. Guys yelling at you, more push-ups. And I just loved it. We were out marching around and singing cadence. And I was by far and away the worst because everybody else in the academy had experience. I remember throwing SEBAs and they wanted us under a minute. And everybody else within a couple throws was well under a minute. And it's like night number two for me. And I'm still a minute 40. And one of the guys that was teaching our academy just got hired full time. His name is Matt. He's kind of like my first mentor. And he goes, hey, you really suck. You're falling behind. And you need to kick it into high gear. The academy was like Tuesday night, Thursday night, and all day Saturday. He goes, here's the deal. I'm on shift. He gave him his schedule. He said, if you want to come in and train and work on stuff, I will work on it with you day or night. Doesn't matter when. If you show up, I'm there. But I'm not going to force you. You need to be the one that initiates everything. And it was like a challenge. You read the talent code or any of these books about skill acquisition. That was my ignition phase was that call. Hey, you suck. Come get better. I'm here. And he didn't know how obsessive I could be about stuff. And when he said, here's my shift schedule, you show up anytime I'll work with you. I don't think he was really ready for like how much I was going to show up. But man, I just started showing up at the firehouse on my own time, just drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling. And he had such a good attitude about it. He never showed like, oh, I'm tired. And, you know, I just want to hit the recliner tonight and take it easy. It was like, if I had something that I wanted to work on, he would pop up, smile and say, okay, let's go out and get after it. And the other thing that he did was right out of the gate, like our first time drilling, he said, if there's something I don't know, I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to act like I know it. If I don't know it, I'm going to say I don't. And we're going to go and learn it together. And I was like, man, this guy, he is a great leader. So that kind of kicked me into high gear a little bit. And really a lot of that obsession with like the preparation phase of sports, like this was that now in a career field for me. And so I'm drilling in my off time and then go to the academy and I start getting better and fall more in line with what everybody else is doing and not lagging behind so much. And yeah, I was able to finish strong on that and really had a good time. My first academy there and then went through a a few academies after that. But getting hired full time, it was horrible timing when I got into the fire service because 2007, 2008, and the economy just tanked and there was just no jobs really. Very few of them. There was a lot of full-time guys getting laid off. And so we'd go to take a test and you get like notification of, hey, there's this test. They're handing out 50 applications. First 50 to show up and get an application and a chance to take the test. And so I go and sleep in my truck the night before, sleep on the sidewalk because I couldn't afford a hotel. We had this little group of us that would drive around together and like crash in cars or like pitch a tent on the sidewalk, do whatever it took to be in that first group to get the applications. And it was letter after letter after letter after letter of rejection. I made it really far with a big department over here when I was 20. 
and I was number 30 or something on their list. I made it through their physical, made it through the Chiefs, made it through everything, and they were going to hire 50 or 60, I think, like a couple classes over that year. And I was like, oh, man, I got it. Like, I got my job. And they froze the list, and they didn't hire, and the list died. <laughs> and so, darn it. And so back to the drawing board, and I tested for 52 different fire departments before I finally got my you're hired letter. And it was a grind, man, to get hired. My wife, I'd be across the state taking a test and she'd be on the other side of the state standing in line waiting to get an application from a department for me. She was as big into getting me hired as I was probably bigger. And I kept all the letters that I got that said, you know, hey, you didn't make the cut and blah, blah, blah. And I, I just stuffed them in a shoebox. And then the day that I got hired, I went, I burned all the, all the letters. I was like, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. And you were working three jobs at the same time? Yeah, I was working three jobs at the same time. And it was a lot of hours at fire stations. And now, shoot, dude, I just worked at 48 a few days ago and I got out of the other side of the 48 and I was like, oh my gosh, that was a long time. Like, I'm beat. And I used to do 96-hour shift, have a day off, go do another 96-hour shift. I mean, it was like you were just living at the fire station, right? And granted, they were a lot slower than where I'm at right now. But I mean, still, dude, it doesn't matter if you're slow or not sleeping at the station. You're not really sleeping that well. Tell me about your rookie years. My rookie years. So I would consider because of the system that I came up in, I mean, I ended up doing probation four or five times because, you know, I got on part-time with one department and then you get another part-time job. You got to go through probation there and then you get that third part-time job to make ends meet and you got to go through probation there. And then when I got my first full-time job, I got to go through probation there. And then I got hired where I'm at now in Everett, got to do probation there as well. So like my life was probation for shoot a good six years, which was kind of cool. I always enjoyed probation. I always had a good time on it. I never did poorly on probation. I never, you know, ran into any big obstacles or anything like that. Like I always kind of just thrived on probation. I enjoyed the pace. And I think just being on that pace continuously for that many years, you've learned to live in that. And so my quote unquote rookie time was really extended and consumed by the basics, stretching hose and forcing doors and coupled that with trying to take all these different classes and obsessing over the basics and trying to learn as much as I possibly can. And I couldn't get enough of this stuff. And man, the relationships that I formed with the guys that I went through the various academies with. My first academy, there's three other guys. We all became really, really close and are still close to this day. You know, we we're all like the best men in each other's weddings and they work for other departments now, but we all stayed really close. And when I got hired where I work now at Everett, the guy that I went through academy with, there was just two of us that got picked up. We had gone through the fire academy together and did that whole grind together. And man, we're really close. Our families are close. The relationship side of things, when you go through the pressure cooker that is academy and probation, and it just makes a bond that is pretty cool. So I enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed when you're on probation, everybody's dumping knowledge on you. And I eat that stuff up, especially when I got to Everett and I really started working with some folks who have decades of a lot of experience. And a lot of the stuff that they're dumping on me is just stuff that 
I'm so thankful for. And when you're on probation, it's like that's their free pass just to unleash everything they got. And then you get off probation and you kind of get established and whatnot. People kind of clam up a little bit. Like they don't want to give you too much opinion, you know, cause you can kind of tell them to go kick rocks. Right. But I'm like, no, man, like, treat me like I'm still on probation. Friggin give me everything you got. I got to get it before you retire. You mentioned your first department was a single station airport fire service. Tell me about that. So I had been on working part-time at three different departments, like I was saying. And the first job offer that I got was actually from, yeah, a little single station airport fire department. I found out about the test last minute, took the test, went through the process, ended up making it to chiefs. And in my chiefs interview, it was kind of funny. The chief asked, hey, I've seen you in a suit all uptight and everything. He goes, show up for your chief's interview and whatever you wear on your normal just day to day. And I was like, oh, kind of different. Okay. And so I showed up in my Georgia boots and my flannel and my (laughs) pants that were all like grass stained and whatnot. And I mean, this is what I wear every single day. It's just different shades of flannel, essentially. (laughs) And we talked for a little while and I don't want to say like I didn't care about getting hired. I was just in the mode. I was taking so many tests at that point. And I had so many like interviews I was going to constantly. Every time I stepped into an interview, the pressure wasn't even remotely there because I was like, if it's not this one, I'm on to the next one. And I just went in there and just talked to him. And I remember him asking me, hey, if I hire you, are you going to stay here forever? Because I want somebody who's going to stay here forever. And I said, you know, honestly, Chief, I don't know anything about airport firefighting. I don't know, you know, anything about this department, really. I can't make any promises. If you hire me, I'll give it the best shot I got. But I can't look you in the eye and say, honestly, that I know for sure I'd stay here. I'll definitely give it a fair shake if you give me a job, but I can't make a promise. We talked some more. I walked out and I called my wife and she's like, oh, how'd it go? I was like, I didn't get it. He asked me point blank if I would stay there forever and I wouldn't tell him yes. And then he calls me the next day and wants to offer me a job. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a shocker. So I accepted. I mean, I've been testing. Like I said, that was my 52nd department that I tested for. And it was a big mind shift for me because I was already doing firefighting. And I was working part-time for one department that was a pretty busy department. And I was running a lot of calls there. And then to like shift gears and go completely away from structural firefighting to like ARF stuff. And they had a structural engine, they covered some structural stuff, but it was like a small regional airport where I remember working, I think Christmas Eve or Christmas day or one of them. And it was like me and the one guy that I work with, and we were the only two people on the airport. That was it. But they sent me through art school and definitely gave it a fair shake. And the guys there were great and everything, but it was just, I knew pretty quick into probation. This isn't what I want to do for the rest of my career. It's not for me, but I was going to stick it out, make sure I gave it everything I got, you know, maybe look at testing afterwards. Well, then a few months into probation at the airport, I get a call from a fire chief for a list that I was on for like two and a half years. And the list was about to expire. And he said, hey, we want to hire seven off this list. And you're in the seven. Are you interested in a job? And I said, absolutely. He said, okay, because the list is going to expire, like we have to get the job notices out now. And so your hire date is four months from now. And I'm like, okay, so I have to basically keep my mouth shut knowing that I've got a job with another department. I didn't want to go in and tell my chief, hey, I got a job offer in four months, but can you keep me on for... <laughs> three months while I wait. So 
I kind of had to just keep it under wraps for a little while until it got closer. And then I let the airport department know, hey, I got a job offer with this other department and uh, about a month away, give you plenty of heads up notice. And uh, I was really thankful that in my interview, I didn't promise, you know, hey, I'll stay here forever. I, I felt like I was able to walk away and go, you know, hey, I gave it everything I got. I gave it a fair shake. And I would, you know, was able to keep my integrity intact, which is very, very, very important. And right off to that next apartment. And my intent was to stay there for my career. I mean, it was a fantastic department, but I've always had... Ever since the first day that I started in the fire service in this area that I grew up in, there was kind of like this lure about the Everett Fire Department. And Everett is a city of a little over 100,000 people, and it's kind of like this gritty, downtrodden town. And the Everett Fire Department is a little bit of a closed shop where not a lot of people around know much about Everett Fire. And we don't do like a ton of interaction with a lot of other fire departments. And it's kind of got this mystery behind it. But we were on the same radio channels as these guys. And I remember when I was in my first academy, Everett was running a fire. And I was listening to him on the radio. I'm like, these guys are freaking salty. They just sound like they're getting after it. These are firefighters. And my chief that was running our academy at the time, he had a lot of buddies that were at Everett. We were listening to this fire and talking about how to talk on the radio and blah, blah, blah. Because Everett, we're like 150 to 180 members, six stations. And so everybody kind of knows everybody and listening to these guys on the radio, you know, oh, hey, Sal, why don't you go do this? Oh, hey, Tom, why don't you go? You know, and they're talking to each other like that on the radio. And my battalion chief is telling me all about how Everett, those guys fight a lot of fire. And, oh, man, those guys are super aggressive. And, he's, you know, talking them up. And this is like my first memory in my first academy. And I'm going, OK, I want to work there. Those guys do it. I want to work there. And so I'm working at this fire department. And like I said, I have every intention of finishing my career there. Well, all of a sudden, Everett, after like, oh man, they didn't hire for five, six years, something like that. A long period of time, they hadn't hired anybody. And all of a sudden, job posting goes out, Everett's hiring firefighters. I'm like, oh shoot. Okay. That's my dream job. You could give me any job offer anywhere in the world. And if I got a job offer with Everett, I'm taking the job with Everett. And that was my one spot. And I'd already made the jump. And you take a chance when you go from one secure job to another secure job, which I had already done. And we got our first kid on the ground when I made that jump over. And so there was like a lot of risk involved. But, you know, my wife, she knew that was the spot. If I could pick anywhere, that's where I wanted to end up. And we talked about it and she encouraged me to go after it. And I took the test and went through the interview process. And I basically just spilled my guts in the interview and was like, this is my dream job. There's no bones about it. If I could work here, I would die a very happy man. And I ended up getting the job. And I'd spent two years at that department. And I'm still really close to a lot of the guys that are in that department that I came from because it is a fantastic department. You know, I could have finished my career and been very happy there, but I had a chance and I went for it and ended up where I'm at now. It's just, I wouldn't change anything for the world, man. Where did you gain your love for engine work? My love for engine work. So really what that stemmed out of was we had this one fire show up and it's like a horse arena. They boarded a bunch of horses. They probably had 30 or 40 horses at this place. And we turned out of the station and we could see the column of smoke 
just me and one other guy. And that guy had like six months less experience than I did or something like that. I mean, it was just two kids on a fire engine. And we show up at this long driveway and we can see this glow. It's the middle of the night, way down there. And we look at each other. We both ask each other at the same time, what do we do? And we just decided to lay in and we laid a thousand feet of four inch down the driveway and came up short, get down there. And there are literally horses on fire, like running around, like their manes are on fire. And I mean, it was super surreal. People are shouting and trying to wrangle these horses up that are burning all over the place. And we're like, you know, just get on a deck gun. And we had a thousand gallon tank and we just unleashed it all and it did nothing and everybody starts showing up and starts trying to get the water supply thing going and we had clogged the driveway with all this four inch and then the crews they show up and they see this big tail of four inch they think oh we just got to pump it well they didn't realize it's a thousand feet our one decision to lay in there just because that's the most drilled thing we did in academy was forward lay forward lay forward lay forward lay right that's just what we reverted back to while that ended up kind of screwing the rest of the fire. I mean, that thing was a big defensive operation and we corked the driveway with a bunch of four inch and everybody had to like slowly straddle it on the way down and they couldn't pump it because it was so long and there was some uphill aspect. Just, we totally screwed that fire. And I didn't know it at the time, but shortly after that, I went through the Washington State Fire Academy. And when I went through that, it was a big deal. I mean, the guys that were teaching there, the majority of them were from Everett. And they were just super dialed in and had a lot of really good knowledge. And when I went through there, I learned a lot about water supply and fire attack. I started thinking back to that fire. I'm like, man, I screwed that fire big time. And I didn't like that feeling. And then my first fire that I showed up to with a nozzle went inside on, you know, I've been bred fire behavior, it's the PowerPoints and taught the T and the Z and the O with the 30 degree fog fire attack. I mean, that was the extent of my knowledge. And it was all this thermal balance. If you flow too much water, you're going to steam the victim out. And, you know, when you open up the door, you're going to watch this neutral plane and you're going to hit it. And you're going to wait for this bump of steam and you're going to move with the bump. I mean, just all the stuff that to me, I knew no better. I kind of felt like when I was learning it, man, this feels way too complex. That was just like my gut, but I didn't know if it was just me not being smart enough to really pick it up well or what the deal was. So I show up at this first house fire and I open up the door and this thing is just chugging smoke and I couldn't really tell where the fire was at. I remember like I could hear it and I remember seeing this corkscrew looking intake just taken off in front of me and this thing is just pumping smoke and up until that point i'd been shown a bunch of like youtube fire horror videos of guys falling into basements and my fire behavior instruction was essentially like don't end up on youtube like this guy and you watch all these terrible things happening but the guys that were instructing never told me any actual actionable details here's what to look for here's how you avoid this situation it was all just very basic if the powerpoint and then youtube horror videos and i'm sitting there at the door like man i'm gonna die if i go in this building like i've never seen this fire nobody ever told me that this choked down snotty mess that's in front of me is a thing i was just told because there's a bunch of pallets on fire in a corner that there would be like this pretty well-defined neutral plane and i go in and take care of business and this is not that fire. I had no clue what I was dealing with. And so it was either charge forward into what I thought was certain death or 
pump the brakes and hang out at the door. And then I was sure I would get called a coward. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, death before dishonor, let's go. And I go and charge in there and I had no clue what I was doing. And it was hot and it was snapping, crackling, and popping. I couldn't get a good beat on it. And I just started like, you know, a little squirt of water here, a little squirt of water there. Cause I thought if I flowed too much that I was going to kill everybody. And I was incredibly underprepared and that did not sit well with me at all. And so that kind of really started my quest. And around this area at the time, like truck work was kind of king. Everybody was obsessed about Venner search and webbing drags and ladders and forcing doors. And everybody's getting all their cool leather accessories. And everybody's like a wannabe truckman, right? There's a bunch of these guys who are doing leather work on the side. And I swear, man, everybody in the fire service around here at that point had every leather accessory known to man. And have you ever seen the movie Dodgeball? Oh, yeah. When they like get their uniforms mixed up and they get those like <laughs> leather uniforms with all the chains and everything. And that's what everybody around here kind of sounded like walking around is like just squeaking leather and, you know, chin strap and leather scabbard and all that stuff. And so that was what was cool. And I was like, well, I don't work on a ladder truck, but I do pull hose. And I was not prepared for that. So I kind of want to know more about that. So I started going down that road. Well, about the same time, Fields was getting started with the nozzle forward stuff. So I kind of got pointed that direction, said, hey, there's one of the Seattle guys is doing this hose class. You should go take it. It's like, okay, perfect. And I don't know how many times I've probably taken the nozzle forward fully, five or six times. I mean, I try to take it every couple of years just to continue to refresh because, you know, Aaron, his message has stayed constant, but like how he tweaks stuff and how he's able to like refine his ability to convey information, like different stuff clicks for me every single time. And so, you know, took his class. And one of the first things right out of the gate is he just bombarded you. With, I learned this from this guy. I learned this from this guy. Like none of this is my own. This is all information for us, open source, just super transparent. And that was very different from my experience in the fire service up until that point. And I was like, man, this is cool. Like, I like how this guy is showing how he evaluated information and telling who he got certain information from and how he tweaked it. I really enjoyed that part. And so that kind of helped spark a little bit of my fascination with some of the engine stuff. And then also Captain John Tanaka, who retired from Everett, I was actually able to work for him while I was on probation, which was huge. I mean, he's trained tons and tons of people here in Washington. And he kind of came at stuff from more like the scientific background, you know, BTUs. Aaron references him a lot when he talks about like fire behavior and kind of where he got some of his initial fire behavior knowledge from. And so I learned a lot from Tanaka on the fire behavior side. And then, you know, started really diving into some of the stuff Aaron was talking about, you know, you reference Andy Fredericks and all of his references. I'm just sitting there like scribbling down every name he's referencing and trying to go and look up articles and everything I can about these references. And there wasn't at the time the amount of information or the ease to gather information. There was like some forums. There's fire engineering, of course, but it wasn't quite as easy. And now it's just unbelievably easy to get information. But I just started compiling information, taking these classes and whatnot. And it's like the further and further down the rabbit hole I got, the more and more I just fell in love with the simple art of stretching and advancing an attack line. And where we're at in Washington here, where I work in Everett, you know, we've got six stations, we've got two ladder companies and the rest are engine companies. 
And so the vast majority of what we do is engine work. Like we're not truck heavy and you go further out from the cities and it just gets more and more engine. So I kind of started noticing the vast majority of what we do is engine work here. So I got to get good at it. The further and further down the rabbit hole I went, the more at peace I was masking up at that front door. I liked the feeling of knowing what was in front of me at least having a little bit of a clearer idea of what I was there to do. And that feeling is kind of addicting, you know. It's nice to be able to show up to a problem that's so chaotic as a fire and be able to be like, okay, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this, you know, and you just have this clear rhythm for it. You used a term in your write-up to me that I really liked, victim-centric. Yeah. Yeah, so the thermal balance stuff and a lot of the stuff that I was initially taught a lot of the guys that were teaching it, they had very good intentions, which their intentions were, it's for the victims. Don't throw too much water because you don't want to hurt the victims. And everything was like victim-centric, right? And then there was this feeling of conflict with, you know, flowing while moving was something in this region was incredibly foreign. And, you know, Field is the big name that brought it to light over here. And, you know, other regions and areas of the world, it's not. But over here it was. And so it was very interesting to me that you have one person on one side of the spectrum saying flow and move, you know, or AKA it was called overwhelming water here for a while. That term, there's flaws with that. But anyways, you have both ends of the spectrum extreme. You have one guy saying flow a bunch of water for the victims. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have somebody else saying don't flow too much water for the victims right? And trying to reconcile the two. I was caught in the middle ground, being a firefighter in my organization, trying to make sense of this stuff and then go out and try to raise the bar a little bit in my little area or whatever difference I can make. Well, I'm trying to reconcile the difference between these two. Well, they're both meaning to fight fire for the victims, but the science and the knowledge at the time, it was more limited, more like anecdotal and experience-based prior to UL. And that's really hard to draw concrete cause and effect relationships from. And so without good science backing up conclusions, you kind of had these two camps and just going through the whole process, it was multiple years worth of going to classes, Brian Brush and guys that were out there teaching. I started noticing a theme and one of the themes I noticed was there's some departments around that fight a lot of fire. How do they fight fire? And it was, yeah, you go in, you open the nozzle and you shut the nozzle down when the fire's out. If that means moving with the line open, awesome, but it wasn't a foreign concept to them. I'm going, okay, then in this region, why are we this insulated little pocket where we know something that everybody else doesn't? If we float too much water, it's going to kill people. Like, why is that not happening in those other places? That's kind of how my initial thought process started. And then the process that brought me to the beliefs and the stance where I'm at right now, you know, that's obviously a long process, a lot of detail there. But really, this landslide started forming and the information started mounting up. It's like, okay, yep, nozzle opens the way to go. But looking back, I don't have any qualms saying the guys who were in the camp saying, hey, limit the amount of water we're throwing up there. They were doing it with the best of intentions. It was just that they didn't have good science backing it up, right? Were you able to bring this back to your department? Yeah, so it's always hard. Changing the fire service is always hard. And I was very careful. And to this day, I want to be very, very, very careful about the amount 
of hills that I choose to die on because I have watched a lot of guys who I look up to immensely in the fire service and I've watched them in their own fire departments become like white noise. They're the champions of all sorts of change. And a lot of it, I look at it like, man, that's a fantastic change that they're driving. But they just become white noise at some point because they're the guy who's always pushing change. And I want to be enjoyed by the people that I work with. I don't want to be one of those guys who's an excellent profit outside of the town that I work in. And in doing so, I got to be very choosy about the things that I choose to take a big stand on and say, hey, this is non-negotiable to me. And flowing and moving has become my hill that I'm okay with dying on. But beyond that, do I have opinions on a lot of other stuff? Absolutely. But what's better is if other guys can step up and grab the torch, it's nice to have other guys who are respected in their own right, trying to drive change in a certain area. So that way it's not like Jay Bonifield's whining about this now. Now he's whining about this now. Now he's whining about this now. You know, the Chiefs are just like, okay, roll their eyes every time Jay opens his mouth, right? And I think we do have to be very careful about that because a lot of guys, they want good change, but they just turn into the white noise machine. And then when they do become white noise, that's a recipe for bitterness and resentment because you feel like nobody's listening to me. And and I've been white noise. One of the things with being in as many departments as I had before I got to Everett was I had a lot of trial runs, right? And I was the guy that was beating every change drum that I can. We need to change this. We need to change this. We need to change this. And you wear out your welcome. And then you become frustrated. Like, why aren't people listening to me? Like, they don't know they need this. And it really taught me, first and foremost, I want to make sure that the guys that I work with know that I value them as people far more than I value change in the fire service. The people that I work with, they're my brothers and sisters. And far more than my concrete beliefs and opinions, I care about them. And I care about their friendships. And I care about showing up and helping them pour their back patio. And I don't want to let Even though there is a time to like take a stand for things, I also don't want to overdo it to where it gets in the way of them knowing that I care about them personally. So it's a weird balance that I've been trying to figure out my way through. But the flowing and moving part, when I triaged the things that I really want to make sure this is something I care about, that was the thing that stuck out as the most bang for my buck. And that's the hill that I'm okay dying on. It's non-negotiable to me. Hoes and nozzles and stuff, smooth bore fog, all that kind of stuff. I have opinions on it. Absolutely. Like, and if you want to ask me my opinion, I'm not going to not tell you my opinion, but I'm not going to fight you over it. If you want to have a fog nozzle on there, like, sure, I'll make a push with a fog nozzle. That's fine. I'm good with it. You got assigned to a busy company and you had an experienced officer that kind of aligned with your ideals that helped out. Yeah. So my captain that I got at the tail end of probation, I think he was on vacation or something like that. And so I only had him for like a month at the tail end of probation. And he's been doing the job for 30 years. And he's just the coolest cat that I've ever met. He's super blue collar, came from the trades, a lot like I did. And he just does not get amped up for stuff. He's a big dude. Everett, for a long time, had a legendary physical test. One of the byproducts of that is a lot of our guys that are well into their 50s, and they're just still freaks. It's hard to keep up with. But he sat me down and said, I don't want a big deal stuff. When we show up to something, you know, let's keep our composure and we're there to work, but we're not going to big deal it. We're going to act like we've been there before. And he started detailing like his plans for fires. I was like, man, this guy 
has a lot of experience and he knows what to do on fires. I'd follow this guy anywhere. There's just something about him. And it turns out like he's just a overall good person to be around. Fantastic leader. He checks all those boxes. I'm like, man, this is what I've been looking for my whole career is this officer. And I've been lucky to stay with him ever since. We've been him and myself and then our driver. We've all been together pretty much ever since I got off probation at Everett and you know, will be for the foreseeable future. So I'm very lucky. And one of the things that I appreciate most about him is that there's a trust built and there's a continuity in our crew where whatever he tells me to do, I know it's more than likely because he's been there and he's seen it and he's done it multiple times before. And I've seen him on, I don't know how many critical high acuity calls. And he's just like the coolest cat and he makes fantastic calls on fires and and other high acuity calls too. And so like, I trust him, but it's really cool to have a guy like that. And it's humbling to be able to have a guy like that turn around and say, no, I trust you to make good decisions. I'm not going to sit there and micromanage you. To have somebody with that experience level turn around and tell you like, hey, I trust you. You're a good one. Get after it. Like, all right, cool. I really appreciate that he's willing to let me make mistakes and learn from mistakes. You know, a little bit more of that free range parenting, so to speak. How did you get involved with teaching and instructing? The teaching and instructing, I never set out and I don't view myself really as an instructor or teacher or anything like that. I mean, I teach our academy, but really from the get-go and to now, it's more just conduit. I'm a sharer of information and I've gone on this journey and my journey really has been, I started out, I got sucked in by engine work and I really just became obsessed with it. And I wanted to know everything that I could about it. And I was privy to a lot of fantastic mentors like Fields. You know, a lot of these guys from afar, one of the things that Fields always said early on, I remember was, he didn't have the in-house mentor. So he went outside and found, you know, Jeff Shoup and Daryl Liggins and Andy Fredericks and so on and so forth. And so I was like, oh, shoot, that's what I need to do. I need to go prior to being at Everett, especially I need to practice seeking out mentors. And just because you've never met somebody in person doesn't mean they're not by way some sort of a mentor to you. And so like Brush and Fields and like all these guys who are, I don't have personal contact with these guys at the moment, but I'm learning from them constantly because they're the guys that I've been able to identify or I get the feeling they know what they're talking about. Go take some classes from them and start absorbing information. Well, then you turn around, you come back and you've got newer folks starting out with the department or a little tiny in-house academy. And they'll ask, hey, who wants to teach, you know, hose and nozzle stuff? And okay, I'll sign up to teach that. And then it makes me go and dive in to prepare for that class. And part of what drives me to teach this stuff is because the amount of preparation it takes for me to actually do a good class, it makes me so much better. It makes me understand the information. And I have like this massive pet peeve. I hate when an instructor comes to teach a class and they show up and they tell you a bunch of information about how to do something. And then they go, well, you know, it's conditions dependent and it's going to be staffing dependent. They just kind of end everything. And well, it's dependent on, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so you're like, you didn't tell me anything specific that I can take back and like use today. You just told me a bunch of generic stuff what are those conditions? Well, what are the staffing levels? Like, let's go into detail here and actually give me something that I can pull out and use today. And I quickly learned like there are a lot of voices in the fire service. Everybody wants to be heard, but there are very few that are actually like worth listening to. 
And so I wanted to make sure if I'm going to go and teach something, you know, and I don't have like any aspirations to go and teach all over the place or anything like that. It's like, I want to teach in my department and make my department better. I want to be able to sift through all this stuff and be able to give the people that I'm teaching something that they can use today. I'm going to tell you, if you see this, do this. If you see this, do this. Not, oh, it's just conditions dependent and just leave it at that and be non-committal about it. So that's kind of what got me started on it. And really what drives me to this day is just the sharing of like actual quality information. How did the opportunity come up to be a part of creating the County Fire Training Academy's engine company curriculum? Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Um, basically, the state fire academy that all of our departments in the county were sending their folks through was going through a bunch of change, and the departments weren't really liking the change that was going on up there. And so one of the division chiefs of training at my department, Chief Matt Sorensen, he came back and was like, okay, what if we do our own academy? And that started gaining some traction. Then a bunch of the other departments around the area started jumping on board. And it became this training consortium thing where these departments were all going to develop this academy and run our own county fire academy. And he really was the initiator of it all. And this was prior to flowing and moving, really getting a good foothold in Snohomish County. And the two just kind of meshed up perfectly, like the ability for us to go in. And so myself and a guy named Brendan Grace, who he works for a department next door to us and he teaches for Nozzle Ford. And then another guy, Derek Roberts, came in a little bit later. Ryan Hopp, Jeremy Carapos, he's like all these kind of guys from different departments. We got together and were basically given like free reign to develop an engine curriculum as we see fit and then detach from checklists. And they had all the firefighter one skill sheets and stuff. And they're like, yeah, don't worry about those. You guys make your dream engine curriculum. Go for it. Like, oh, sweet. So everybody just kind of over the course of about a year or a year and a half before our first academy, I mean, we were meeting constantly and developing this curriculum. And one of the big things we were trying to fine tune, kind of using the academy curriculum as a vessel for change within the entire county to help us develop a practice and a culture of flowing and moving and sound fire attack, really. And so we were trying to figure out as a hit and move heavy county where you're going to hit it, shut it down, move forward, where flowing and moving is really uh, foreign to us. Like, how do we teach this at the academy? Because all of us are sitting there and going, okay, knowing what we know, like that's something we have to teach at the academy, but it's foreign to this area. So, okay, how are we going to do this? And so consulting, man, Fields gave us a lot of his time, just met up at coffee shops and off time. And luckily we have him in our backyard here. So he just gave us a lot of his time and a lot of time on the phone, just talking to him about how to implement all this. And some of the other guys we were able to reach out to, uh, Scott Corrigan is another name that we're really blessed to have in our backyard right here. And I spent a lot of time on the phone with Scott going through a change, like a cultural extinguishment change. Like we went through, there's a lot of ego involved and Scott really understands like how to navigate that and get to the point you want to get to, which is getting this flowing and moving stuff going and get it honed the way we want to hone it because he understands like the tactical aspect and the fire behavior and the fire attack and like the science behind it. He understands it so well, but he also understands people so well. And he understands how to communicate to people bound up and their egos are on high 
high alert. He understands how to tear down those walls and be able to get through to those folks really well. And so consulting those guys, all of us kind of developed this engine curriculum. And a lot of it, you know, anybody who's taking a nozzle four class is going to come and look at our engine curriculum and be like, a lot of it is very much so adopted from nozzle forward. And uh, it's kind of cool to be able to take a class like that and put it into a four-week-long engine curriculum in an academy. Beyond that, there's a lot of other influences, Brothers in Battle and Brian Brush, a lot of these guys that are out there. We're just taking information and we're trying to distill it down and hone what we're teaching and just beg, borrow, and steal anything from anywhere we can. And obviously, you know, just oversight the credit where we can to make sure that everybody knows we're not making this stuff up on our own. Like this is stuff that we're just tweaking and trying to use here in the academy to give these recruits the best information we can. How did you get involved in the acquired structure burns? So prior to getting involved with the guys that I do the burning with West Coast Fire Training, it's so funny how it came about. Myself and my good friend, Brandon Schmidt, he works for uh, Seattle Fire and him and I, we started in the same agency together. We ended up getting hired full-time at the same agency together. And then he went to Seattle and I went to Everett. And we live in the same town. Like our kids are good friends. Our wives are good friends. I call them Big City Schmitty. We've been good buddies for a long time. And the department that we worked part-time for, while we were there, we were both training nerds. And when we left, they'd reach out every once in a while. Hey, we got this house, this acquired structure. You guys want to come and help us burn? Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, if there's a house burning, we'll be there. And so we got a lot of experience, kind of just the two of us doing these house burns. But we were doing it more like just shoot from the hip every single time. And there was nothing super formalized to it. We got asked to do three houses. The department had access to three acquired structures and they want us to come burn these three acquired structures, one per shift. You know, they got A shift, B shift and C shift. And they want us to come and do those. And like, we didn't have any formal business or anything like that. Like we have never wanted or desired to have a training company. We just want to burn houses. I mean, literally, we wanted to be a couple of kids in the backyard doing backyard stunts. We're just having fun lighting stuff on fire and putting it out. So we reached out to a couple of guys. Michael Gustafson works up there. Jesse Ireland works for Bellingham Fire. And then Nick Oda works for Seattle. And uh, Nick and I are actually cousins through marriage. Our wives are cousins. So we all kind of get together and like, okay, we're going to need some help. We rounded them up and let's go burn these three houses and help this department out. And kind of at the last minute, Nick goes, hey, I got this lieutenant that works down in Seattle, uh, Ian Bennett. He knows a lot about burning houses. Let's see if he'd be interested in coming up and helping us out. And one of my values that's really important to me is humility. And I think that there's been a lot of areas that I look back on in my life where I've either not been humble or where I have been humble and like something really cool has come out of it when I was. And it just cements in my mind, like, man, if something makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up because you can feel your ego inflating. Like when somebody says, hey, this guy knows a lot about this thing. Let's include him. If that makes you go like, and you can feel your ego rising, like, you know, I want to do it, right? Then you need to like really question why that is. And so at the time he said, oh, we got this guy, we should get him in here. And at first we were kind of like, uh, 
and we kind of sat down and questioned it. Like, why is this? Okay, let's get him in here. Let's be humble about this thing and let's learn from this guy. And he comes in just awesome dude, super knowledgeable. And over the course of those three days of burning, like he came into this group of established guys. We've been together for a little while, like burning lighting houses on fire and stuff. <laughs> and uh, he comes in and, and just falls right in, gets along great with everybody. And turns out he knows a lot about how to set up the house, how to prep the house, the burn plan that needs to happen, like all the logistics stuff. He knows a lot about how to actually burn the house also, but everything that is really important from like the safety aspects, how to keep everybody safe, it took it to a whole new level beyond just Schmidt and myself and the rest of the guys lighting stuff on fire and saying, send it. And what it allowed us to do was to really work on making fires that are not just pallet fires in a corner. Like we want to present fires so that guys aren't running into the same thing that I ran into when I showed up to my first fire, which was I was confronted by something I had never seen before, was never told that would happen. And so like using that to kind of drive what we've been doing with these acquired structures, it allows us to pull off some burns that are a lot closer to what people are actually going to see in the field. And then therefore they're able to build their game off of something that's actually realistic and not just a bunch of pallets on fire in a corner, you know? So that was one of those moments I look back on like, man, if we would have let our egos run wild there and the hackles stand up, we would have really missed out on an amazing opportunity there to learn from a guy. And I'm so glad that that whole group of guys that we burn with, I think the biggest thing that stands out to me with those dudes is every single one of them is just so humble. And I think that's really important, man. Yeah, everything cascades off of that. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's trying to make a name for themselves. Nobody's trying to make money. It's seriously just, hey, let's burn a house. Okay, cool. Uh, give us some beer money or whatever. Uh, and we'll go out and have some beers afterwards and talk about the house burn. I mean, it's just the most awesome time with those guys. But man, I've been learning so much from these burns though. So the, the payouts and the knowledge for sure. Touching back to what we said was foreshadowing with you loving the process and also loving game film. You guys film a lot of tick footage of your burns and your write-ups that accompany the footage are incredible. Thanks, man. Talk to me about the footage, the how and the why, and then talk to me about when and how you hone that ability to write so proficiently and effectively to accompany it. The way that we acquire tick footage is the most low-budget backyard thing we'll get these ticks and we'll take old cell phones. We found out that the old cell phones actually work the best, like GoPros and stuff like that. They reach this heat limit and they shut off. And the field of view on a GoPro is a little bit wonky. The cell phones actually just work unbelievably. And we basically take the shot through the tick. And then the nice thing about a cell phone is you can come off the tick and you can show here's what the naked eye sees. Okay, now here's through the tick and you can kind of go back and forth. So we just you know started sticking guys in corners of the building. And the whole idea behind it is when we're doing these acquired structure burns, because we're building the fire to flash over, like we're flashing rooms over. And so we're not getting 30 burns out of a house. You know, we're getting six or eight or like 10 if the house is really big, but that's not a lot of volume. And so like with Connex boxes, you go in there and there's a ton of volume. You can go rep, 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 rep. There's some guys out there with Conex boxes, like FDTN and all that kind of stuff. They're doing fantastic stuff. And this is, you know, absolutely not a shot at Conex boxes. There are some limitations that Conex boxes do have that acquired structures can kind of give you. There's a benefit. But what you gain in some of the realism of the acquired structure, you give up for high repetition. 
And so in order to maximize repetition, what we wanted to do is capture on film the nozzle as they work the fire. And then with the cell phone, we're able to like basically come out, the guy strips his gear off. And then while he's still off gassing, pretty much we like, Hey, here's what you did in there go ahead and watch it. And it's like instant feedback for the guy. Cause when you go in, you fight a fire, everything is just like chaos. And even in a training burn like that, it's still kind of chaotic and your heart rate's amped up. But there's a few feelings that you have that if you don't capture them in a short time period, immediately after they come out, your brain starts kind of talking itself into reasoning why things were a certain way. And so you lose track of a lot of the feelings and a lot of the sounds. So if you're able to take somebody fresh out of the fire, take your mask off, open up your coat, and let's watch this game film. And then you watch, you see your pace, and you remember like, oh, that felt a lot slower than I was actually going. You know, I was actually moving way faster than I thought I was. They're able to key in on a lot of these feelings with everything being raw. And it just takes a learning moment and it magnifies it times a thousand because you've got all that fresh muscle memory. And so that's kind of how we started doing that. We were able to give this instant feedback to people. And then a lot of the stuff that we were learning from watching people go, from doing it ourselves, and just from being in there for push after push after push after push, we started looking at it and going, man, I wish when I was sitting at a kitchen table, like arguing with somebody about why we need to change a certain thing or whatever, why something works and this guy's saying it doesn't, blah, blah, blah. I wish that I had just a video that I could pull up, but there aren't any out there that we were aware of. And there just wasn't like that much stuff without going and spending a bunch of money and flying somewhere and taking a class from somebody and then like trying to ask them, you know, hey, can I grab that video so I can show this guy back at the fire? You know, and they're going through that awkward process. We just didn't have the resources to be able to obtain all of that information, whether it was there or not. So we just kind of decided like, hey, let's just start putting this stuff out there because none of us are trying to get rich off this thing. None of us care to have our name attached to anything. Like we just legitimately want to see people just have as much free access to just good quality information as possible. And it may not be like the highest quality as far as the video footage goes. My write-ups may have a bunch of rambling like offshoots, but I don't care, man. Take what you can use out of it. Throw away the rest. It doesn't make a difference to me. I'm just going to like unload a bunch of stuff. And where that stuff usually comes from is when I'm working out. I got a garage gym. I'll go out and I'll be working out by myself. And that's like my time to just think. And I think that's really important with the hustle and bustle of life is, you know, people call it like mindfulness or like meditation or whatever, but to slow down and just have a period of time regularly set out where you have yourself and your thoughts and whatever comes out of that comes out of that. And a lot of times it's just making sense of stuff that's happening in my life, like raising kids or whatever it is. But sometimes it's thinking back, seeing some of the tick footage, having it fresh in my mind. And I'll be like working out and I'm out in the garage by myself. And I just am thinking about it, parsing through it. And I just decided to like record my thoughts essentially in writing. And that's kind of where it comes from for me is recording it because that's another avenue that I've found that is enormously helpful in cementing concepts in my mind is when I write. And whether or not it goes out to people, a lot of it doesn't. Most of it just stays in my head or like I'll write it down and just save it. 
But sometimes I'm like, Hey man, this is something that I feel like if I was sitting at the kitchen table, arguing with somebody, I would want access to this. We put it out there and hopefully it's helpful to people. Tell me about some of the details that you want in each write-up for the footage. There's no like specific format, but I've gone through a progression and this is where I'm at my current state of my journey. Obviously, I'm like highly fixated on the engine company side of things. And, you know, going back to the reason why I love engine work, one of the things that I love about engine work is that fighting a fire on the nozzle feels a lot like a wrestling match to me. At the same time, it's the ultimate team sport but it's also incredible, individually skill-driven. Like if the nozzleman's not doing his job, number two on the line's not doing their job, and so on and so forth down the line, all the way back to the guy pulling levers on the pump or folks supplying the water supply, like all that stuff has to be all on the same page and complement itself so that the line gets to the seat of the fire. But also if each individual is not performing their tasks at a high level, then it bogs down the entire team. So it's like this really cool dichotomy of teamwork and individual skill. And it feels a lot like a wrestling match to me or doing jujitsu and grappling where you say go, you go through the front door and it's a pretty quick period of just all out. Every muscle is burning, your heart rate's jacked through the roof, your breathing is taxed, everything's on fire. Uh, and it's just this crazy amount of all out effort, but you can't just let the effort overcome your mind. Like your mind has to move at a different speed as your cardiovascular system like wants to go at this high repetition, your mind has to slow down. And that's what I love about grappling while you're wrestling another human being, like your mind has to be moving slow enough to be able to consider the options. Nozzle works the same thing. And so the body mechanics 100% drive the water mapping and where the water goes. And at the end of the day, where the water goes, the water getting to the right spot, getting to the sea of fire, like that's all that matters. But there's a lot of things that go into placing that water where it needs to go and being intentional about it. And there's a lot of things that we do in drill towers. I'll kind of hit on that subject a lot where we have drill tower muscle memory. We go in and we just have these big, gigantic hallways and we're just, you know, splashing water all over the place because we like the audible feedback. We're out in parking lots on pavement. We like the audible feedback of the stream hitting the pavement. And then we go in the fire building and we're shocked at how poor of a job we do at sealing off the fire area with our stream. Well, it's because all of our muscle memory up until that point is the stream coming down, smack the pavement, smack the pavement, smack the pavement. And 75% of the time, our stream is down low. And then we're shocked when we go into a fire building like, dude, you did a horrible job at sealing off that hallway and that doorway because 75% of your stream was down low for your muscle memory. So the body mechanics, in order to have good water mapping, you have to have good body mechanics. We've watched push after push after push after push where folks have poor body mechanics. And the first thing that your brain does, as soon as you start like losing traction or losing balance or whatever, you're already sensory deprived because visibility sucks. And then you start kind of going off balance a little bit. And the first thing that goes is your nozzle movement. Your ability to target your water is just gone because your body's in survival mode. Keep me upright and keep my traction, right? And so if those break down, the water mapping goes south. Okay, let's start with the body mechanics. 
I'm not trying to like reinvent the wheel with anything or be original. In fact, everything that I've learned is from Fields or from Daryl Liggins or from you know Jay Camella or from Brian Brush and all these guys. And I'm just trying to take all the stuff that those guys have taught me and try to distill it down in a way that makes sense in my head and then just put my put the way that I think about it on paper and maybe saying it in a different way might click with somebody else. So I'm a big proponent of making sure that the body mechanics are really wired tight and that when we train, we've got to train in context and make sure that we keep the pavement and the drill tower and everything else in their proper context. And then when we go and we train, especially acquired structure stuff, which I think is like the most beneficial part, at least for our region, because we're so drill tower and pavement heavy, we're able to go in these acquired structures and then fine tune the last thing, which is the water mapping part, which at the end of the day, that's all that matters is that the water gets where it needs to go when it needs to go there. But the write-ups... I try to make them touch the body mechanics, the fire behavior side, what you're seeing with the naked eye, because that was part of my problem when I showed up at that first fire was I saw a visual cue and I wasn't ready for that visual cue. And the fire behavior and fire attack instruction I'd gotten up until that point was, oh, well, it's conditions dependent. You'll know when you'll get there sort of a thing. I don't know and I'm here. So (laughs) now what, right? And what I've found through learning from all these guys and learning from my own experience and being fortunate to work in a department that goes on a pretty decent amount of fire, I'm able to go to these fires and really learn, man, engine work is a crazy dichotomy where it's infinitely complex, but at the end of the day, it boils down to some very simple principles. And it legitimately is, if you see this, do this. If you see this, do this. If I open up a door and I see turbulent smoke, that means that surfaces are hot. That means I need to cool from this location right here. If I open up that door and I don't see a bunch of turbulent smoke and like Fields calls it, you know, move, hit and move and push. Like if I can move, I'm going to move. I'm going to take advantage of it, but I can't have turbulent smoke, which equals hot surfaces and then couple that with move. That doesn't work. That's a recipe for diving in too fast and getting flashed on. So cool it down, shut the line down, move into position, make my push, right? So trying to help people go through the process that I've gone through and just shortcut it is kind of my goal with this stuff because, man, you can get way into the weeds and you can end up with a ton of different visual cues and a ton of different choices. But if you just have some very simple concepts of what it looks like when I'm going to need to flow, what it sounds like when I'm going to need to flow, and then what is a push fire? What does it look like, sound like, feel like when I need to make a push? If I've got turbulent, nasty smoker, I've got fire, and I'm within that 20 or so feet of the fire compartment, okay, let's push this thing, right? Has your fitness mindset and routine changed from your gym rat days? Yeah, it has. (laughs) It has, man. You know, the gym rat, high school, Jay, ah, man, the guy I mentioned earlier, Joe, my buddy on shift that we kind of go back and forth with each other on at any given point during my day. I hate wearing uniforms and I hope my battalion chief doesn't listen to this, but my battalion chief doesn't really come around our station very much. And because of that, we kind of get a little bit of free reign to be able to wear what we want, especially right now with the COVID stuff going on right now, like no chiefs coming in the station. And so I may go a little bit overboard on wearing shorts and cut off sleeveless shirt with the sides ripped out, just like when I was in high school. And Joe always makes fun of me whenever I put that 
cut off, sleeveless, ripped off shirt on. He, uh, oh, it's high school Jay coming out. And, you know, high school Jay was big on trying to bench press as much as I could. I hated doing squats and the whole thing. You know, it was all about how much you could bench. And I would say the lift that I do the absolute least now is bench press. In fact, I fell in love with squats, man. I don't know how that happened, but I love doing squats and deadlifts now. But a lot of my fitness stuff is really adapted. I use a lot of kettlebells, and a lot of that's because we've got like this kettlebell guru at work that I'm always bouncing stuff off of. And this guy is an incredible wealth of knowledge with kettlebells. Uh, his name's Tom Corgan. And when I work with him, Every once in a while, like on overtime or something like that, him and I will be out in the bay at like midnight, you know, swinging kettlebells around. I'm picking his brain and he's got like the physiology behind how you put certain pressures in certain areas of your palms for certain lifts and just crazy amounts of knowledge. But big on kettlebells, they've been really helping me rehab. I had a shoulder injury. I plateaued. I was getting super frustrated and I wasn't going anywhere. And I had like searing pain between like my chest and my shoulder that would not go away. And my physical therapist couldn't figure it out. I started working with Tom on kettlebell stuff and just taking like this tiny little seven pound kettlebell and internally rotating my elbow and learning how to like pack my shoulder down and protect it and utilize certain movements and just walking around with this little tiny kettlebell over my head and doing lunges with it over my head. Man, all of a sudden my shoulder was just getting like worlds better over the next couple of weeks and it's better than it's ever been even post injury now. It's not just all about lifting as much weight as you can. <laughs> what are your goals for the next few years? I just passed up a driver test because I don't like driving the fire engine. We've got a captain's test in a couple of years and I'll take that. But I love what I'm doing right now. I love being a pipeman right now. And I just want to continue to like refine that. Really, my goals are more family centric right now with COVID. They're talking about keeping school shut down this next year. So we got to kind of figure out how to like homeschool my oldest, which is something we never thought we'd end up having to do. It's kind of an interesting thing to wrap my head around here. That and in our training group doing the acquired structures with the guys at West Coast Fire there, one of our goals long term is to try to help facilitate how to actually run acquired structure burns well. When we do an acquired structure burn, it's a team of five of us minimum that are in like strategic positions that we have identified. These are must-have positions. And when I look back to the days when it was just me and Schmitty doing burns by ourselves, I mean, we are so lucky that we didn't get ourselves or anybody else hurt with a lot of the stuff that we were doing. And like knowing what I know now, in order to provide this like really good quality training and do it within the bounds of like NFPA 1403, there's just some incredibly valuable lessons that we've learned. And I think getting some of those on paper and being able to share those with people and try to elevate the level of use, the level of safety and the level of knowledge within the acquired structure realm is really what we're trying to push forward and be able to continue with the fire attack side of things, especially water mapping and how to use the streams on the inside of the building. And a lot of the footage we're able to capture, just be able to 
provide information for folks that wouldn't have any other means to gather this information otherwise and hopefully try to do what we can, just like everybody else has done, to elevate the bar a little bit and increase the knowledge on that side of things in the fire service. But yeah, the choir structure realm, we'd really like to get some of the lessons that we've learned more formalized in documents and be able to provide them so that folks can learn from some of the stuff. Because we've made some pretty brutal mistakes and <laughs> we've learned some stuff the hard way. Like our first burn, when we got those three houses and all five of us or whatever are burning for the first time together, one of our first things we did was we got everybody together just like we had done time and time again in like this big living room space. We lit this fire in the corner and we were going to do this fire behavior lab and show, you know, smoke and here's the smoke moving around, all this kind of stuff. And dude, we almost hurt a bunch of people because it was a big, open, uncontrolled space. And we had safety lines. We had the whole thing. And the students, I guarantee the students had no clue how close they were. But like all of us, because when we had to use the safety line to knock the thing down, it took a few seconds for the safety line to get control because we let the box fill up with tons of smoke and we were like playing with the ventilation and blah, 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 blah. And then when that upper level started to kind of light off, that stream struggled to get control of it. And we're like, oh, shoot. And it got really hot. And we've always kind of had this rule like, hey, make sure the instructors are always between the students and the fire so that you're the first one to know how bad things are. We've never, ever, ever want to like melt somebody's shield or anything like that. I mean, that's a failure on our part if that happens. And me and Ian, we were at the front in between the students and the fire, and we were like burning up and going, okay, this is not good. Let's open up the safety line. And the takeaway from that is, man, leave the fire behavior labs in those big, open, uncompartmentalized spaces. Leave them to the connex boxes and the concrete burn buildings where the walls and the ceiling don't burn. Don't take a bunch of students and smash them into a living room of a house and throw a big fuel load in there and start playing around with the ventilation profile. Like, heads up, buddy, everything in that house burns and it will flash over. That concrete building, that thing's not going to flash over. That house, that'll flash over. So really the process should be parking lot, connex box, acquired structure, actual house fire. Exactly. So that's how we run our academy. We get a lot of acquired structures around here because there's just a lot of development going on. And the process that we went through with designing our dream curriculum, yeah, we go parking lot and we develop the skills in the parking lot with the body mechanics. So the first thing is just body mechanics. And we're not even going to worry about where the water's going. Like we're out in the parking lot. When you're out in the parking lot, it's purely body mechanic. Your focus basically ends at the bail. Your focus is 100% body mechanic driven when you're out in the parking lot. And then when you start working in the drill tower, okay, now we're going to start worrying a little bit more about where the water is going and the angles of approach that you're taking to a fire room. We're going to work on keeping to the outside wall and we're going to work on, you know, how to work two rooms that are on fire. And we're going to build muscle memory with door thresholds. Hey, man, you passed a door threshold. Bring that nozzle back up high restart cooling high to low in that room that you just moved into because that building now is giving you certain features that you can key off of. So now we're building that component into it, but we're not talking about fire conditions when we're in the drill tower. We're not going to talk about fire conditions. We're not going to talk about if you see this, do this because they're not seeing it. And what you're teaching them to do is you're teaching them to essentially neglect the visual cues 
fire behavior wise because they're hearing them and they're just like, okay, I'll see it at a later date. I'll see it at a later date. I'll see it at a later date. Well, then when the later date comes, they don't realize it and they've developed the habit of just passing those over. Then we go into the Connex boxes. The Connex boxes provide high repetition, but the layouts aren't exactly realistic. The sounds the stream makes aren't 100% realistic. The way that Connex box reacts to the stream, there's always a lot of excess humidity because it's just a exothermic box in a lot of cases. Water's getting on metal and it just makes a lot of residual humidity. So what we build in the Connex boxes is we're taking away your visibility. We're teaching you to key in a little bit more to your stream sounds. Although it's not 100% realistic, you now have to kind of rely on, I always bring up my blind Uncle Jimmy. We call it the blind Uncle Jimmy drill because my uncle, he uses a cane everywhere he goes. Well, your stream's your cane, man. You got to figure out where you're going by hearing your stream when your visibility has gone. I always bring up the story about how my brother and I, when we were little, we'd be at my grandparents' house. My Uncle Jim, he loved cereal and he'd hog. We had one TV and my Uncle Jim would just sit there and like listen to Star Trek all the time. And you can quote three words out of a Star Trek episode and he'll be able to tell you what episode number it was. I mean, he's just <laughs> ridiculous, his recall with that stuff. But when we'd want to watch baseball or something like that, and me and Trev would be like, hey, Uncle Jim, can we have the TV? Oh, no, I'm watching this for another little while. And there's no on-demand or anything like that. So our shows, our game's about to start or whatever. And so we go and we would take his milk in the refrigerator and we'd like move it to a different spot. And he'd go to get his bowl of cereal and he'd go in there and start patting around like, what the heck, where'd you put my milk? We're like, give us the TV back and we'll tell you. So we always bring that up with the Academy and my Uncle Jim gets a kick out of it. He loves that we equate being limited visibility in there to being in his world where he can't see anything and having to rely on sounds of stuff and feeling. So we teach that in the Connex boxes. And then when we go in the acquired structures, the reps are way down. So we go, okay, there's a little bit of a reward and we tell them all at the front end. If you guys do really well, we're going to pick some people that are going to be on the nozzle for the acquired structure. Not everybody's going to get a turn, but we're going to pick the people who stood out to us. Work your tails off and you'll get on the nozzle for the acquired structures. We'll burn for two days. We'll get about 12 to 14 burns. So that's 12 to 14 people on the nozzle. And everybody else is in, we call them observation stations, right? So we'll have the nozzle crew going and making a fire attack. And like you'll see in our videos, there's always kind of people around where we stage people in certain areas so they can see it, hear it, and feel it. They can experience the fire attack inside with it, but not being on the nozzle. And both of those positions are incredibly valuable. I mean, going on the nozzle, there's all sorts of good takeaways you can have for that. But just being in there while somebody attacks a fire, one of the things that always sticks out to me is when I'm in between the nozzle and the fire, because I grew up in the fire service thinking too much water is going to hurt people. And I can't tell you how many times I've been like ahead of the nozzle when the nozzle opens up and I got caught with a glove off because I was fiddling with something like a camera or whatever. And that nozzle opens up and it goes from like scorching hot in there to just pure bliss in seconds. And this whole thing that I was taught about, oh, you're going to get burned, you're going to get burned is no, it doesn't happen, man. That's not happening. That nozzle opens up and that thing starts crushing fire and everything gets better. And so we're able to teach actual real visual cues and point at something and be like, okay, when you see that, 
I want you to do this on a fire, on an actual fire. And everybody's able to actually see. Now we're adding the real world visual component and the audible components to it. And you're just building, you're adding one component at a time throughout their learning trajectory instead of just trying to add everything all at once in a drill tower in one environment. Yeah, nothing cements belief like experience. For sure. Yeah. Where can people reach out to you and find you on social media, the pages that they should follow? I just have a Facebook. I don't have any other social media or anything like that. But the guys at West Coast Fire Training, we got a Facebook page for that. And we try to post a lot of our videos and write-ups with the Engine Company Resurrection page is where the vast majority of them are. And the reason why I wrote them there is because it's a closed group. And personally, I want to be very, very careful to make sure that people understand, like, again, that I am not original. I'm literally just regurgitating things that I have been taught by other people. And I'm also taking experience that I have experienced with other people and digested and just thought about and verbally vomited on a write-up. I mean, there's no originality here, right? And so in the closed group, it kind of gave an avenue to get the information out to a lot of the folks who got their heads in the game. They're obviously seeking information if they're going to be a part of a closed engine company related group. But without doing so in a way that is going to have like my name attached to a bunch of it, because really it's just about getting the information out. If I could just hunker down in my woods back here and continue to take my dog on a walk, you know, and hanging out with my wife and kids, I'm good with that. Like I don't want my name attached to a bunch of this stuff. It's just about getting the information out. And so the closed group gave an isolated ability to do that without having my name get super attached to it. And then the other thing is that a lot of the burns that we're doing, man, and the footage that we're getting, I love it. I love doing it. And I know all the guys that I burn with, they're the same exact mindset. We want to protect it. And as soon as you unleash something to the world on social media or whatever, you open it up for some random person somewhere to be like, you're violating you know, this. And they don't realize all of the precautions and all of the work, the days and days and days of work that goes into each acquired structure burn that we do. They don't realize that the system that we have set up and the redundant safety factors and all this stuff. They just need a snapshot and they can cause us a ton of headaches if they do that. And so, you know, we just want to make sure that we're protecting what we've got going on here because hopefully it's valuable to people. And, you know, if they want to reach out, I'm always down to talk engine stuff as are the rest of the guys that I burn with and that I work with. Everybody's really cool about just being free with the information. So, Well, as you are with this information that you're sharing, you've been super gracious with your time today. So I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you letting me just let my ADHD run wild here, Scott. <laughs> I feel like we could do eight <laughs> hours easily. <laughs> oh, dude, more coffee for sure, dude. I had a full night's sleep last night for the first time in a while. I'm, I'm firing on all cylinders. That's awesome. It was perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, man. Okay, well, let's wrap it up and uh, do a part two down the way. Hey, sounds good, brother. Okay, cool. <laughs>